Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. got a jam-packed show for y'all today. Um, I have what I think is the best answer to a question from Joe Biden that I've ever heard in my life. I'm going to lead with that story because it's actually very relevant to what's going on overseas at the moment. Um, So you're not going to want to miss that. We have Nina Turner being smeared in a corporate-backed ad going after her because, of course, she's draxing them sclounced in the polls for her Um, Ohio congressional race. We're going to talk about that. Bernie Sanders spoke to the New York Times, and um, he took a position on the police that might surprise some of you. We're going to discuss that. I actually have a couple segments about Bernie's interview. I could have spoken about a number of different parts of it, but I selected two that I thought were most interesting and most important. Um, We will get into... Ron DeSantis, Draxon them sclounced in, in his polling for the 2024 presidential race. Hunter Biden is a quote-unquote artist, and why that's actually a pretty serious issue. Um, yet again, it goes back to the classic pay-for-play corruption type stuff. Um, I have a couple stories on corruption, a couple stories on workers, Amazon for one, Frito-Lay for another, 
uh, workers getting absolutely obliterated and um, how they're fighting back and how they should fight back. And uh, a bunch of stuff from CPAC later on the show. CPAC, of course, the Conservative Political Action Conference. A lot of the craziest people in the country go to this thing, and um, they give us all sorts of content for days and days and days. So not going to want to miss any of this stuff, man. Uh, Let's go ahead and get started. And like I said, I'll do it with Biden. So the new news coming out of Afghanistan is that uh, the Taliban is continuing to advance. They've actually surrounded one of the bigger cities there now. Uh, That's what I saw this morning. They've taken, you know, over a dozen places since the U.S began to draw down. Um, Now, interestingly, of course, the media is all over this. And they're all over it because it allows them to pressure the Biden administration from the right, to pressure them from a pro-intervention perspective. As I've pointed out every time we've discussed Afghanistan, the media never really was critical from a non-intervention perspective. So, you know, for example, when we bombed the civilian hospital in Afghanistan, killing a bunch of civilians. It was in the news for maybe a day or two, but it was out of the news pretty quickly. And there weren't these, you know, outcries uh, from the press to pull out and stop doing damage or to stop arming the Afghan army who helped us with that bombing. When we got the story about our allies being warlords with child sex slaves and U.S. soldiers blowing the whistle on our allies, that didn't lead to an outcry from the press for us to get out when we got the Afghanistan papers, which prove that this thing is, you know, a boondoggle, a quagmire, it's totally aimless. The only winners are the defense contractors. And, um, you know, it's deep corruption going on there and profiteering. That didn't lead to a sustained outcry to get us out. So you'll notice a pattern here. When, When things are going wrong and it's because we're there, you don't hear any conclusions drawn or it's, in and out of the media very quickly, when things go wrong nominally because we leave, all of a sudden the media is all over it, and the heavy implication is, look at how irresponsible this is. We need to go back in. So um, I was nervous, and still to some extent I am nervous, that the more the media covers this, the more Biden is going to feel pressure, like he has to do something, like he has to put more troops back in Afghanistan. Now, again, to be fair, we don't know whether or not Biden will ultimately fully withdraw, take out all the contractors, take out even the U.S. soldiers who are training the Afghan army. We don't know. But as of right now, we left Bagram Air Base, which is, you know, a really big step. And so I give Biden a lot of credit for that. And now with the Taliban advancing, you know, you sort of sit there and watch and you're holding your breath and you're going, any day now, he might hit us with, well, we got to send more drones over there. we got to send more air power over there. we got to keep more troops on the ground than we thought we had to keep on the ground because the place is going to shit, and so, you know, what are you going to do? I'm waiting for it. I'm waiting for it. But really, my answer is always the same. I don't want to hear about Kabul or Kandahar until Flint, Michigan is taken care of. I don't want to hear about them until we get our infrastructure up from a grade of D or, or C- minus or whatever it is now, according to the Society of Civil Engineers. I don't want to hear about it. But guess what? Now, since the Taliban is advancing and taking over a bunch of places, um, this clip resurfaced. Now, I don't think I've ever seen this clip, but this clip was during the campaign, Biden went on Face the Nation, and he was asked a question basically about this exact scenario that we're seeing right now. 
hey, if we withdraw, because you say you want to withdraw, Joe, if we withdraw and the Taliban starts advancing, don't you own that? Isn't that totally on you for drawing down? And this answer is, I don't know how else to say it, based Joe Biden. Washington Post quoted you this week in a story about Afghanistan, saying that back in 2010, you said to Richard Holbrook, the then envoy, I'm not sending my boy back there to risk his life on behalf of women's rights. It just won't work. Not what we're there for. Is that how you remember it? What did you mean? What I meant was there's a thousand places we could go to deal with injustice. I can think of ten countries where women and or children and or people are being are, are being persecuted or being hurt. But the idea of us going to be able to ask, use our armed forces to solve every single internal problem that exists throughout the world is not within our capacity. The question is, is America's vital self-interest at stake or the vital self-interest of one of our allies at stake? And the fact that they have a system in Afghanistan, as they do in parts of Pakistan, as they do in parts of other countries, that we're going to send troops because there is not a, a human rights are not being valued to the same degree that we are. That's a different story about sending combat troops. We should call it out. We should go to the United Nations. We should be saying, this is what's happening. We should try to shame and get the world to put pressure on and economic pressure on people who engage, countries engage in that, but not send troops. That's what I meant. It is not sufficient. That was my point. And the idea was, and I think Richard had said something like, well, women are being abused there. I said, they're being abused a lot of places around the world. Are we going to send our American forces all over the world and make sure that stops? But then don't you bear some responsibility for the outcome if the Taliban ends up back in control and women end up losing the right? No, I don't. Look, are you telling me that we should go into China because go to war with China because what they're doing to the Uyghurs, a million Uyghurs out in the West in concentration camps? Is that what you're saying it was your quote, sir. I was asking you. No, I know. I gave you one. I gave the answer. You, do I bear responsibility? Zero responsibility. Mm-hmm. The responsibility I have is to protect America's na- national self-interest and not put our women and men in harm's way to try to solve every single problem in the world by use of force. That's my responsibility as president, and that's what I'll do as president. Damn, son. Damn. Now, I'm not arguing Joe Biden made this point because he has ideological commitments to a non-interventionist foreign policy, we've seen him be interventionist in the past. So it's not even the case that it's, you know, from a principled perspective or an ideological perspective that he's making this argument. I mean, it strikes me like he's honestly arguing this from a cranky old man perspective. Like, don't ask me something like that because you're trying to blame me for something and I don't take responsibility for that. Whatever his reasoning, I don't really care. This answer was based as hell. It's incredibly based. I mean, this is as good as you're going to get from any U.S. politician when it comes to foreign policy issues. And the the problem here is the premise of the media. And this is a premise that's shared across basically all of traditional media, which is this idea that the United States is the world police. We should be the world police. It's our job to go around and, you know, bring about justice. And we're the peacekeepers. We have benign, benevolent intentions. And this mindset is not something that they would ever grant to any other nation. So everybody else is viewed as acting from a, like a crude, materialist, selfish, greedy perspective. 
but we're viewed as, you know, the, the default perspective is, well, obviously, we mean well because we're us. So for us, it has nothing to do with going around the world and extracting natural resources. It has nothing to do with geopolitics and trying to keep China and Russia in check. It has nothing to do with the fact that war is a business and defense contractors get phenomenally wealthy the more we intervene around the world and drop bombs and do stuff. They don't look at that at all. And in fact, you're called a conspiracy theorist if you bring that up and say it's even a small factor in what's going on. But it really is a crime that the media has this assumption and has this premise that, of course, we're the noble actor around the world. And sometimes we mess up and we mumble and we fumble, but you know what? Ultimately, since we mean well and our intentions are pure, it's just, it's a one-off. If we mess up, it's just a mess up and you can't hold us to any standards. Again, international law either matters or it doesn't. Either we all hold ourselves to the same standards and rules and laws, or we don't. We don't have the ability. We don't have the right to just allow ourselves to be above the law and tell everybody else, you have to follow the law. And this is the way that we have to start thinking of this. You know, um, whenever we break international law, we undermine it because then you give other nations the argument that doesn't matter what I do, doesn't matter if I follow the rules, you guys break the rules all the time. Anytime the U.S. questions some authoritarian nation for cracking down on journalists or locking up journalists, they look at us and say, don't talk to me about any of this. Look at what you did to Chelsea Manning. Look at what you're doing to Julian Assange right now. Look at what's going on with Edward Snowden, who's a whistleblower. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear any of it. You know, invoking, what is it, the, the Espionage Act or something to crack down on whistleblowers and, and effectively journalists? I don't want to hear it. So the media is just totally misguided and it's pathetic. It's this groupthink. And the other point that's super important is this was going to happen no matter what with the Taliban. Because whether we withdrew in 2005, in 2008, in 2013, or today, or in 2047, whenever we were going to withdraw, this was going to happen with the Taliban. Afghanistan is called the Graveyard of Empires. It got that name for a reason. And you know what? If China wants to go in there and take a crack at it, which they already basically said they are, they're going to do the Belt and Road Initiative and invest $62 billion in infrastructure in Afghanistan, try to use that so that they can extract the natural resources, the trillions of dollars worth of mineral wealth. Like, okay, I'm against imperialism as a matter of principle, so I don't think anybody should be extracting natural resources for anybody else. But, you know, if they want to try it and they want to end up failing like everybody else failed, by all means, go right ahead. Now, I don't mean that. Don't do it. But if they do do it, does that mean the U.S. should rush in and continue permanently occupying it just to stop Russia or China or anybody else from, from doing the wrong thing? We need to do the thing that's immoral and unethical and wrong and illegal because they might do the thing that's immoral and unethical and wrong for a reason. That's just not convincing at all. But once you acknowledge the reality that this was going to happen with the Taliban no matter what, staying in looks as absurd as it is. And the best part of what Biden said there is, he's asked, don't you bear some responsibility for the outcome? He says, no, I don't. I bear zero responsibility for it. And he makes a great point. He says, there's a thousand places that we can go to fight injustice. You know, and I, I'll name some more. The Congo, South Sudan. Look at what's happening in Haiti now. Look at Myanmar. Look at what's happening in Myanmar with the Rohingya Muslim 
who basically are being ethnically cleansed. So does that mean we should militarily intervene there? And if you say no, on what grounds are you saying no? Because that's arguably a worse humanitarian crisis than anything else we're talking about here. So, so what do you mean? Biden is accepting the premise there of like, oh, yes, the U.S. does fight injustice, but if there's all these other things that are going on that are unjust, why would we pick and choose this one in particular? I go a step further and say, I don't even buy the premise, because the, idea is, the reality is oftentimes when we go around the world, we are the ones perpetuating the injustice, perpetuating it. Look at when we armed al-Qaeda. Look at what we're doing now in Syria. And the list goes on and on. Saudi Arabia is one of our top allies, and they spread a radical version of Islam all around the world. And that's the other thing. They're talking about women's rights. Oh, my God, we need to go in to protect women's rights in Afghanistan. If you want to protect women's rights, first things first, your ally Saudi Arabia cracks down on women's rights. You want to protect women's rights? Stop arming and funding Saudi Arabia. Stop uh, aiding and abetting, uh, effectively, a genocide in Yemen. See, we're only responsible for what we do, guys. We're not responsible for the good that we don't do. We're responsible for the bad that we do. And so an easy way to make the world a better place is to stop participating in the bad stuff. Stop aiding and abetting and helping the genocide in Yemen. Stop uh, arming and funding Saudi Arabia. Stop arming and funding Israel and helping fund their illegal occupation and wanton violation of international law. Stop the embargo that we're doing right now on Cuba. Stop the, the sanctions on Iran, which, you know, these places are struggling with food and with medicine, in large part because of our policies. We're responsible for, the, the, for our actions, our actions that are actively incorrect and immoral and unethical. That's what we need to do. But if we pull out of Afghanistan and all of a sudden it goes to shit, do we bear responsibility for that? No. If anything, we just shouldn't have gone in there in the fucking first place. But now that we're getting out, should we get back in in order to prevent something that's going to happen in 10 years or 20 years or 30 years anyway? Of course not. Of course not. So, um, sorry, that was, a, that was a bait Joe Biden answer. And, you know, again, I don't really care. I mean, I wish he was doing this for the right reasons. It might not be for the right reasons, but as long as he sticks to this, I'm going to defend him. No, Joe Biden does not own what happens in Afghanistan now. Um, it's like when we withdrew from Vietnam, I'm sure that led to chaos and all sorts of problems. But the problem wasn't us pulling out of Vietnam. The problem was us ever going in in the first place. And as Martin Luther King said, the time is always right to do what's right. And so this is an instance where Biden, and Biden has actually surprised me to this point, because the fact that he got pulled out of Bagram Air Force Base, it's like, oh, so he might actually be serious about really limiting our footprint in the Middle East, and I'm going to give him credit for that. And if Trump did it, I would have given him credit too. Turns out he didn't. Trump was all talk, so let's see how far Biden goes with this. But the more the media attacks him over this Taliban stuff, the more the media completely loses me. And on this specific issue, I'll definitely defend Joe Biden. If reverses, and he very well might, we don't know, then I'll go after him. But right now, props to him even though some bad things are happening in Afghanistan. And by the way, are there things he could do that are reasonable? Of course. So, for example, all the interpreters, all the people who aided the U.S. while we were there, um, they're online to get into the U.S. now, and they need to be approved. I would approve everybody who helped us, everybody who we made a deal with and a promise to. Um, but outside of that, listen, you could arm and fund the Afghan military from now until forever. But if at the end of the day there's no will and they just drop their weapons and run, 
in, into Tajikistan, was it? Is that the border country? The second that they see the Taliban coming, well, then there's nothing we could do to give them the will to want to protect the country if they don't even view as fighting for their country as something they want to do. So, I, of course, I don't blame Joe Biden for that, and it's ridiculous to blame him for that. Enough with this paternalistic, imperialistic mindset of, like, we have to stay to prevent further bad things from maybe happening. No, if you want to make the world a better place, just stop actively participating in the bad things. And I already listed a bunch of things we can do to make the world a better place. So don't fall for the propaganda because it's exactly that, propaganda. And this argument from Biden is honestly probably one of the best ones I've ever seen him make. Okay. Next. Now we're going to talk about Nina Turner. So Nina Turner uh, is absolutely obliterating her opponents in her congressional race in Ohio. It was so glorious to see. The poll made her look like Tiger Woods or Michael Jordan or, you know, the best of the best of the best, the GOAT when it comes to this stuff. There's nothing that's more inspiring than seeing a true lefty dominate in a race because it shows you if you run a good campaign and you have the right ideas, you can overcome odds that are stacked against you. And anytime you're anti-establishment, the odds are stacked against you. But guess what? Now the establishment is panicking, and they're throwing everything they got at Nina Turner. I mean, they're launching nuclear missiles right at her face. That's what they're doing. So all the big guns came out. Hillary Clinton came out. You know, a bunch of other uh, big-name Democrats came out, Clyburn, and they threw their support behind the closest establishment opponent to Nina Turner. Um, the one that I'm like, I'm sitting and I'm watching, and I'm like, oh, for the love of God, don't do it, is... If Obama feels like it's a close race and there's a chance that Nina Turner can be defeated, like it, so if the other opponent shows a glimpse of life, he might come in and try to endorse the corporate Democrat. And God, would that, that would be so crushing. But Nina is on the verge of something very special right now. And obviously her being in Congress would be huge because then you actually have somebody who's not only correct on the policies, but also is a fighter. And they need fighters and they need leaders in D.C., to really have what is effectively a left-wing Tea Party that's, that can push the Overton window to the left, make real arguments, and get some real change, even though the deck is still stacked against us. Well, um, now there's an influx of cash coming into the race to try to defeat Nina Turner. Here's the new smear ad that was run against her. This country is more polarized than ever, and Nina Turner is no help. Unified Democrats? Turner said no. Support Clinton over Trump? Not Nina Turner. Help Biden defeat Trump? Turner refused. Instead, Turner said voting for Biden was like eating Turner even voted no on the entire Democratic platform, rejecting Biden's plan to build on Obamacare. Nina Turner for Congress? No thanks. Nina Navartak is responsible for the continent of advertising. Okay, so let's break this down. Understand they are so desperate, and that's why they're doing this kind of gutter politics. And a lot of that, if not all of it, is completely misleading. So when they say she, you know, she was against the Democratic platform, what they don't tell you is why she was against the Democratic platform. She's not against it because she's, like, agreeing with Republicans. She's against it because it didn't go left enough, in her opinion. 
didn't have the Green New Deal in it. Uh, it, it had effectively, quote, ironclad support for Israel. They didn't even condemn uh, the illegal settlements or the expansion of it. And there's no Medicare for all in the platform at a time where we have a pandemic and millions of people without insurance and medical bills being the top cause of bankruptcy. So that's why she was against the platform, because the platform, in her view, was very milk toast. Now, if somebody in the early 1960s said, you know what, I'm against the Democratic platform because it's, they're not pro-civil rights strongly enough, or they're not pro-civil rights at all, well, how can you blame that person? Or if, if you attacked it and said, hey, I need the Democratic platform to be against the war in Vietnam because I think it's criminal, and it wasn't, how can you attack somebody for that? They are correct, and history will prove them correct. So Nina Turner looks at the Democratic platform and says, listen, there's a lot of things in it that are good, but you need to have these things in it or I can't support it in good faith. So that's why she opposed it. If anything, that's more of a reason to support Nina Turner, not to be against her because she's principled and she's intelligent and it shows that she'll actually fight for these things. So that's, what they used as a strike against her is actually a really strong argument for her, that she's independent-minded and she's going to not just go along to get along with the crowd. The crowd is dead wrong. So, I mean, that's annoying as hell. By the way, there are other things that were missing from the platform that I can't remember right now, but there, I remember reading through it at the time and saying, this platform is sort of trash. Like, there needed to be, it needed to go a lot further on a lot more issues. Um, so let's keep going here. When they made the argument, oh, Nina Turner didn't want to unify Democrats. The point that Nina makes and the point that every principled, independent-minded lefty makes is that why is it people only scream about unity when it's to fall in line behind a corporate candidate, behind more of a right-wing Democrat who agrees with Republicans half the time? That's the point she was making. So why, why don't we talk about unity like right now when Nina Turner is crushing the field, where's the unity behind Nina Turner? There is no unity behind Nina Turner. Corporate Democrats and centrist Democrats and right-wing Democrats didn't go, oh, you know, I need to be for unity as a matter of principle, so let me support Nina because that's the right thing to do. She's leading by so much as an insurmountable lead. They didn't say that. They didn't say that. Because they invoke unity. It's a ruse. It's a scam. It's to get you to fall in line and not criticize Democrats who deserve criticism. So, I mean, Nina could flip this argument right back on them and say, wait a second, you're saying I don't want to unify Democrats. What about you? You're not unifying right now. You're doing vicious gutter attacks and smears because you want to win the race. Now, I'm sure Nina would say, you know what? It's okay if you want to make your argument, make your argument. But don't come after me when I make my argument. And by the way, my argument's even better. So I hate, like, it's just such a misleading nonsense. It's trying to appeal to tribal partisan instincts in people. That's what it's trying to do. Um, then they say something about she helped. She didn't help Biden defeat Trump. Listen, Nina Turner, and there's people who may agree with this. There's people who may disagree with this. Because obviously the debate about lesser evil voting comes up every time there's an election. And lefties have strong opinions in, in one direction or another on this. But ultimately, she voted for Joe Biden. Now, yeah, she didn't do a thousand rallies for him. But why should she? Joe Biden doesn't really reflect her values in any concrete way. Does he reflect it more than Donald Trump? Sure. But 
yes, that's as far as she was willing to go. Yeah, I'll vote for the guy, but I'm holding my nose as I do it because it's kind of gross because here's a guy who supported the Iraq War. Here's a guy who supported the Patriot Act and NAFTA. Here's a guy who did the bankruptcy bill and the crime bill, which locked up so many young you know, men of color for crimes that shouldn't even really be crimes, nonviolent drug offenses. And Joe Biden, to a large extent, was unapologetic about that. So that, that's her criticism. He's still terrible. He's better than Trump, but he's still terrible. So, no, I'm not going to do rallies for him. Is that what you expected? You expected her to go out there and do rallies for somebody whose values are not really that much in alignment with hers, even though he's better than Trump? See, that's the thing. They're so, not only do they want you to shut up and fall in line in a general election behind a corporate Democrat, they also want you to be excited and, like, ecstatic about supporting them and, like, acting like there are no real differences policy-wise between your values and theirs. And that's just, they want you to lie is what they want you to do. And then again, they bring up this quote, which I knew they would try to use this against um, Nina when she said that voting for Joe Biden is like eating shit. Uh, now, of course, again, they're being misleading because Nina's full quote is something to the effect of, yeah, voting for Biden or Trump, that's like giving me a bowl of shit and saying, would you rather eat the whole bowl or half the bowl? Voting for Trump is like, or seeing Trump win is like eating the whole bowl. Voting for Biden, Biden or seeing Biden win is like eating half the bowl. Is eating half a bowl of shit better than eating a full bowl of shit? Of course. But it's still a bowl of shit, so forgive me if I'm not excited about eating this. That comment is totally accurate. And you know what? There are a lot of people around the country who relate to that. Because people are disgusted with politics as usual. This is why Congress usually has an approval rating around like 20%. Because people know they're always voting for the lesser of two evils. People know it's like, okay, who am I going to vote for? Which competing group of special interests and donors am I going to vote for? Should I vote for the ones who represent Wall Street and uh, billionaires and the military-industrial complex? Or should I vote for the ones who represent Wall Street and billionaires and the military-industrial complex and you know, Silicon Valley and uh, lawyers? And it, it's just – it's a – which group of people who shouldn't be running the country but are should I vote for? Because that's what it is with our corrupt system. And again, the arguments that Nina would make are like, here's a guy in Joe Biden who voted for the Iraq war. That's an illegal war. It's a crime. It should have never happened. Um, killed hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians. Torture happened as a result of it. She has a problem with that, and she should. The Patriot Act, illegal NSA spying on everybody. Joe Biden supported that. NASA outsourcing jobs. Joe Biden supported that. The crime bill, the bankruptcy bill, which made it so you can't even file for bankruptcy on your student loans. These are the things Nina Turner would cite. I have a problem with that. That's why it's like eating half a bowl of shit, because it all comes back to policy, and she's serious about policy. Policy. She's serious about improving the lives of the American people. And when she sees a Democrat actively hurting the American people, she's against it. And she's going to call it out. And again, what more do you want? Because ultimately, she did end up voting for Biden. So she did eat half the bowl of shit because she thought it was better than eating the full bowl. But the fact that she's honest about what she did makes you turn on her. But that's the thing. They were never with her in the first place. Because the whole point here is we need to not get any strong lefty leaders 
in Congress. Because there are people there who agree with you and me nominally, but let's face it, we've seen how they acted. They're not leaders. They don't have that leadership quality. They don't have that backbone of steel where they're willing to get hated by the media and by leadership of their own party. And Nina Turner does have those qualities. And so they're trying everything to make sure she doesn't get elected. And these are the kind of gutter attacks that they're going for. Every single thing she said there, when you look at it in context, and you actually steel man her arguments instead of strawmanning her arguments, you understand the core of everything she's saying here is accurate. Because she's not a, a mindless partisan hack. Her only allegiance is to the American people and good policy that would improve lives. And the people who are attacking her are corporate goons who want to keep the status quo in place, who want to continue having a government that represents them, the corporations, and not the American people. That's who's attacking her. And that's why all they got is just now raw appeals to partisan tribal instincts. They're trying to leave an impression with voters in her district in Ohio that look at the things she said. Sounds like she's not even really a Democrat. Maybe she's more sympathetic to the Republicans because look at her quotes. Why would you say that about Biden eating a bowl of shit? Why would you say that unless you sort of agree with the Republicans? It's just, it's a lie. It's a lie, effectively. Because she says Trump is a full bowl of shit. So, you know, it's just appealing to base instincts and emotions and counting on people to not be independent-minded and thoughtful about how broken our government is and about how much Nina Turner wants to change that. So... Guys, they're throwing everything they can at her. And that poll where Nina was leading by a mile and a half, it was great, but it was an internal poll. And so we need to hope that more independent polls verify this, and we need to hope that her lead is big enough where she can withstand this onslaught of, you know, smear ads and smear attacks. And the only upside of that poll where she was up so much is that Obama's cautious, so he may look at that and be like, she's up too much. I don't want to endorse against her because if I do and Nina wins, then that tarnishes my image and my legacy. And so that might be the only upside of that poll. But what I would say to Nina is keep at it. You know, run through the tape. If you're up 40, you've got to try to be up 60 because these people are vicious. And also Nina needs to remember, if she ends up winning, look at what they tried to do to you. This is something that Bernie wasn't good at. Bernie wasn't good at getting smeared and stabbed in the back 18 ways and then, you know, using his power and the bully pulpit to outmaneuver them, whether it's being more aggressive or whether it's playing chess and, you know, using political jujitsu on them where you win in in these battles. Bernie sort of would just, like, fall back a little bit when he would get the unfair criticisms and the smear attacks against him. I don't want Nita to do that. I want her to take down names, take down groups, understand, you know, what a lot of these swamp creatures in D.C. are really about. I mean, listen, even the Congressional Black Caucus now endorsed against her. What does that tell you? The Congressional Black Caucus is now representing moneyed interests. They're representing the corporations and the billionaires, and they want to preserve the status quo. And so that's why they were against Nina. And so Nina wants to shake stuff up. Nina is a real change agent, and Nina is dedicated to Medicare for All and a bunch of these issues that they are not in favor of. But this is a real important race, and she's so close. We've got to get her over the edge, and she's got to keep fighting. 
God, they, they, to stop even a social democratic movement, there's no low they won't sink to. And we're witnessing that happen right now. Okay, next. So Bernie Sanders did an interview with Maureen Dowd of the New York Times. And, uh, you know, the whole idea of, of the interview was he wants to push this new reconciliation bill, um, which is people, some people are calling the human infrastructure bill. There's a bipartisan one that they're doing or attempting to do, and then that's supposed to go hand in hand with a partisan reconciliation bill at the same time. Bernie originally wanted it to be $6 trillion. Manchin and Cinema are like, no, maybe one or two at most. And so now it looks like, they're settling on 3.5. But listen, I mean, at the end of the day, I'm not optimistic that this will get through. But uh, he's trying. He's trying. Um, if I was him, obviously, I've explained to you guys a bunch of times the ways in which I would try. Uh, I don't think this backroom stuff is uh, something that works for the left. I think the left needs to leverage what they have, which is the power of the people, and get the people more involved and do like a, a bottom-up strategy in a way as opposed to playing the Machiavellian backroom games. But having said that, he, in this interview, most of the interview, he's pushing, you know, the policies he wants in this reconciliation bill. It's, of course, an honorable thing for Bernie to do. Uh, there are a few moments that, you know, popped out to me in this interview that I want to share with you. One of them involves the police. So Bernie may have surprised some of us here. Uh, this is from the article. Still, Sanders is not in lockstep with the most progressive members of his party on everything. He says, for example, that he prefers fundamental reform to defunding the police. A cop's life is a difficult life, he says, sounding like the mayor he once was. Schedules are terrible. Salaries, in many cases, are inadequate. It's a dangerous job. It's a job with a lot of pressure. We need to significantly improve training for the police. In certain communities, what is going on is absolutely unacceptable. It must be changed, period. We cannot have racism in policing. If you go to black communities or Latino communities, they want this protection. Uh, when I ask Sanders if he thinks AOC could be president someday, out comes the list. That's not what I want to get into, he barked. I want to get into what this legislation is about. So, I mean, listen, just the fact that this came up, um, I think Maureen Dowd was sort of, you know, fishing for some drama and some quotable things that can become big stories on their own. I mean, mission accomplished, because... This did blow up, um, but some people are surprised by Bernie saying this. I'm really not. I'm not surprised by Bernie saying this because he hinted at this or said something similar not too long ago that I believe we may have covered on the show. Um, listen, I agree with him. I agree with him. Polls show that only 18% of Americans want to defund the police. Now, some of the more intelligent people who are pushing for defund the police, when you talk to them, what they say is, hey, defund isn't abolished. Defund is fundamental reform. So effectively, they argue, what they're pushing for is actually no different than what Bernie's saying here. To which I respond, if you believe that, then don't attack him when he says this. Because this, again, strikes me as perfectly reasonable. And again, only 18% of the U.S. wants to defund the police. 
And the other thing I would say is, if you are one of the people who says, well, defund really does mean fundamental reform, it doesn't mean abolish, again, I would implore you, for the love of God, be clear in your language. People shouldn't have to go through multiple layers of decoding in order to get at what you're in favor of. What you're in favor of should be obvious up front. It shouldn't require people to, like, you know, have to read between the lines or go to a policy paper that's dense before they get a full grasp of what you're arguing for. Because, listen, I follow politics, obviously, every day. It's, it's my life. And when I heard defund, it sounded to me like abolish, like get rid of cops. So, but if defund means, hey, cut the police budgets because they're just way too big and put a lot of that money into social services, which can help address problems that cops shouldn't be dealing with, like people that have mental health issues, for example, I say, of course I agree with that. But fundamental reform is a lot more popular. Overwhelming majority support that than saying defund the police. So, I mean, this is something that obviously it's an internal left conversation that we're having here. And what I would argue is you don't need to give an inch on these policy ideas that are super important. Um, but in terms of messaging, you should be willing to say and do whatever is necessary to get the numbers to win so you actually can implement the agenda. And if you're not willing to give an inch on unpopular messaging, then you're your own worst enemy. You know what I mean? You are your own problem. And the big problem on the left where some people want to hang on to the edgy outsider aesthetic and and stay uh, an insular niche subculture instead of becoming the majority culture. And the whole idea in politics should be, if you want to win and get your agenda implemented, you need to appeal and bring people into the tent, not kick more people out of the tent, and that's how you become the majority culture. And if everybody's already with us on the policies, and you frame it in a way where they want to be with us even more, instead of being turned off by us, then the overwhelming numbers obviously help in these political battles. It's not the end-all, be-all, because our system is deeply corrupt and the politicians represent the donors, not the people. So we still have that hurdle to overcome, which is a problem all on its own. But of course you want more people with you in the battle. Of course you do. Duh. So um, I, I will 100% defend Bernie on this stuff. I mean, I've been very critical of Bernie on a number of fronts. I do think that in many ways he just doesn't have that kind of real fight in him anymore. Um, I think he's, he's committed to this sort of inside-outside game where he sounds like an outsider, but then when he gets in a room with a lot of these Democratic leaders, he's willing to talk with them and probably negotiate away way too much. So I do have big uh, criticisms of Bernie, but this is not one where I'm criticizing him. I think he's perfectly reasonable about this, and I think the left would be better served if they adopted his framing on this. Now, again, I want to reiterate this point because I feel like this is the most important point that will be overlooked if people take what I'm saying out of context. I'm not saying you have to give in on policy at all. Um, in fact, hold on. Let me pull up uh, campaign zero for everybody. I've talked about this a number of, time on the sh number of times on the show. This was like the original Black Lives Matter movement and the things that they were calling for. I don't want anybody to give an inch on any of these ideas because I think all of these are – um, important and necessary and correct and intelligent. So what should the left be fighting for? End broken windows policing, community oversight boards, uh, limiting the use of force, independently investigate and prosecute cops who commit crimes, community representation, 
uh, body cams and, and filming the police, redo the training and put an emphasis on de-escalation, end for-profit policing, demilitarize the police, and have fair police union contracts. Obviously, and I would add to that, of course, end the war on drugs, end the war on drugs, end the war on drugs, legalize tax and regulate drugs, and free every single nonviolent drug offender in the country. So those are the substantive policy ideas that I'm in favor of. I'm not going to give an inch on any of those. I will fight for those tooth and nail. So what I'm asking of you is not to give up on this, which is the, the meat of the conversation. What I'm asking is to give up on the edgy outsider aesthetic and arguments of defund the police, which, again, is only supported by 18% of the American people and makes people understandably think, oh, you want to, like, abolish police and have no police? I'm against that. That seems pretty radical. So uh, I think Bernie's right. I think he's obviously right. And, yes, there needs to be some pushing back on that narrative. And my final point is, I've said this before, but I'm only soft on crime when I don't think the crimes should be crimes. So all of like the victimless crimes and the nonviolent drug offenses, I look at that and I'm like, these things shouldn't even be crimes. But I'm actually tough on crime when it comes to things that I think should be crimes. Murder, for example, or violent assault, or grand larceny or robbery. By the way, you know, in another area where I am incredibly tough on crime, financial crimes, because those actually do more harm in the real world than like petty property crime. You know what I mean? So like, look at what Goldman Sachs did where they had fraud as their business model. How many lives did they ruin with that? How many lives did they ruin with that? You know, corruption, political corruption. I would treat that like it's similar to murder. That's what I would do. And it wouldn't be as rigid and stringent. You know, it wouldn't be there must be a literal quid pro quo. Here, sir, I am giving you money to do some corruption. I am bribing you. Now, will you go and do X for me since I've given you cash? I don't think the bar should be that high. I think it should be, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt, but emphasis on the word reasonable. There's so many instances where we have corruption and it's not viewed as corruption. So, you know, I'd be super tough on that. But point is, and this is just my opinion, and I'm not a broader, you know, spokesperson for, quote, unquote, the left. This is just Kyle Kalinske talking here. But I am soft on crime that I don't think should be crime. And I think we should legalize tax and regulate drugs, free all the nonviolent drug offenders, stop with this nonsense where there's like victimless crimes where we over-police communities of color and poor communities. That's where I'm soft on crime and I'm in favor of, you know, rehabilitation and things of that nature. But when it comes to crimes that should be crimes, I'm tough on crime. And so I think that if you don't have that opinion, it's hard to get through to people because my guess is, and this is just a guess, to be fair, but my guess is most of the American people believe that, you know? So to just give one piece of evidence, when you look at the polling on the death penalty, now I'm against the death penalty because 4% of the time, according to a study uh, that came out a few years back, 4% of the time we killed the wrong people. So you're basically, the state is murdering innocent people 4% of the time. I'm not okay with that at all. But a majority of the American people support the death penalty which tells me what? Now, again, I disagree with them on that issue, but it speaks to a mindset of, in their mind, they think, oh, these are the people who are obviously guilty. And they did it. They murdered the eight people. Or they, you know, did whatever other horrendous crime. So I think that speaks to, in the U.S., right or wrong, people have this no-nonsense attitude towards serious crime. But when it comes to things that shouldn't be crimes, that's where everybody's a lot softer. And so that's my opinion on it. 
I don't know if Bernie Sanders agrees with me on that. I think he probably is a little more to the left of me on that, um, in that maybe even some serious crimes, he would lean more heavily into rehabilitation than he would into, you know, punishment or, or tough justice or whatever. But, um, you know, this is, this is where I think a lot of people on the left are. But again, I'm just speaking for myself here. But if you do believe this, yeah, it makes sense to talk about it and speak up because this is a contingent of the left that's not really in the public discourse all that much, you know. And again, if you're somebody who, who supported the slogan of defund the police, but you actually agree with what I laid out here, I would just urge you to don't move an inch on your policy positions because you're right on those. But yes, change the slogans because we want to build the movement, not reduce the movement. So anyway, there you have it. This is an area where Bernie's getting criticism, and I don't think it's legitimate criticism. Okay, next. Okay. Let's talk about Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden is back in the news. Um, Normally, I don't like these stories about Hunter because I feel like people are terrible at separating out what's important and serious versus what's not. When it comes to his personal struggles, his private struggles, addiction, sex life, I don't want want to have anything to do with it. I don't really want to talk about it because it's none of my business and everybody's got struggles, right? So I think the right has done a terrible job at sort of separating out what's real and substantive versus what it makes you just a petty weasel trying to get in somebody's private life. Um, but there are plenty of things there that are serious and are real and aren't, you know, petty personal drama related. Um, one of those things as we've talked about on the show is corruption. You know, I don't care what anybody says. It is very obvious to me that the reason why a Ukrainian energy company hired him and threw money at his face is simply because they wanted access to Joe Biden and they wanted to be able to get what they want policy wise from Joe Biden. And um, if you don't see that, I think you're sort of being dense on purpose. Like, you're being obtuse. Like, you don't understand that this is the way politics works. You don't understand that that was an attempt to gain favor with what was the vice president. You don't understand that? I think you do understand that. I think almost everybody understands that. And if they say they don't, it's just because they're, you know, they're being very partisan and playing for their team, and they can't admit fault in anything on their side. So anyway, um, well, now... We have a new story from Hunter that blew up. It involves him becoming an artist and selling his artwork. Take a look at this. Walter Schaub is the former head of the Office of Government Ethics under President Obama. Uh, Walter, thanks for being with us. So some of those safeguards uh, put in place are neither Hunter Biden nor the public will know who bid on or purchased the work. And if there's unusual behavior, like the offer being too high, the collector doesn't appear to be interested, the gallery is expected to turn down the offer. You don't think that's enough. Why? No, I mean, they have outsourced government ethics to an art dealer. She mentioned industry standards. It's an industry that's notorious for money laundering. There's no standards in that industry. And the idea that they're going to flag any overly priced offers, well, this is art that hasn't even been juried into a community art sale. How is how are they going to decide what's unreasonable when they've already priced it in the range of 75000 to 500000 for a first outing. This is just preposterous and very disappointing. I, 
I mean, that's an Obama ethics official there. And this is what the Obama official is saying. Yes. So the real story here is not that Hunter Biden is an artist. Uh, The real story is he's an artist and his pieces are going for up to $500,000. Now, if somebody is an artist and, you know, they're involved with the business side of it, you don't just come out of nowhere and, like, immediately start making up to 500 grand per piece. The reason why he's getting that much money is because he's the son of the president. And this is an attempt, whether or not it would actually work, I find largely irrelevant, to be honest. But there is clearly an attempt here where some of the people buying some of the art are going to only do it because, again, they're trying to get aligned to the president. They're trying to get some sort of favoritism from the Biden administration. And Biden and the White House felt the need to come out there and say, no, 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 it's okay. That's not going to happen because we're putting safeguards in place. I mean, listen, all I'll say is this. Think of if if the Trump kids did this, how would you feel about it? I would say the exact same thing I'm saying now with Hunter. I would say, I think it's bullshit. I think making $75,000 to $500,000 per piece of artwork, there's more that's going on here than just, you know, gosh golly, here's a guy who's just been a struggling artist for so long and he loves it. And, oh, would you look at that? Finally, his stuff is taking off solely based on merit. I don't think that's the case. I think it would be corrupt under the Trump administration. I think it's corrupt under the Biden administration. I think it would be corrupt if it was George W. Bush or Barack Obama, even though obviously his daughters were too young at the time. But um, if it was Hillary Clinton and, you know, Chelsea Clinton, I would say the exact same thing. I think that there's more going on here than what meets the eye. It's not just like he's an artist and he finally made it. No, it's Hunter wants money. He's trying to find a way to get it. And so now this is the thing he's come up with to get it. But also whoever would partake in this, whether or not it will work is irrelevant. But some people are going to try to use this to get aligned to the president and to get some sort of favors from him. Again, is Biden going to act on that? Is Biden going to you know, actually listen and return the favors or whatever? I don't know. I don't know. But honestly, I don't really care because this shouldn't be happening in the first place. This should be nipped in the butt up front. And it just goes to show you how lax the rules and regulations are around corruption in this country and around bribery. And as long as you have some sort of veneer of seriousness, you know, then everybody just sort of lulls themselves to sleep and acts like there's nothing wrong with this and it's okay. It's definitely not okay. It's definitely not okay. And again, this is, stop and think about it. If some, you know, developing nation dictator was doing this and their son or daughter was an artist and they would get preposterous amounts of money for their artwork, how would we look at that? How would we talk about that? I think everybody would see it for what it is, which is sort of like a sleazy pay-to-play scheme. Now, by the way, I went and I looked at uh, some of his art. How would I talk about it? I'm not an art expert, uh, you know, but art is very subjective. In my opinion, it's neither good nor bad. Do I think his art is just bad? Not really. I mean, I think it's okay, you know, but um, is it worth $75,000 to $500,000 a pop? Not if his name wasn't Hunter Biden, it wouldn't be. And I think that's so obvious. So that's the real problem with this. Don't let anybody try to tell you otherwise, because they're lying if they say otherwise. And um, again, this is the problem with partisan tribal politics, is that, you know, if it was the Trump kids, the Trump people would say there's nothing wrong with it, and, and you're wrong. If it's the Biden kid, then, you know, the 
a lot of Democrats are going to say, you're wrong and there's nothing wrong with this. I disagree. Stuff like this shouldn't happen. It's, you know, it's what I would say is like a soft version of corruption, along with a thousand other things that are soft versions of corruption. And um, this is one of the reasons why government is where it is, is because there's so much that goes on, which they don't think twice about, but really this stuff is deeply unethical. You know, I mean, we can go on and on here, but there's a story that just came out about Nancy Pelosi's husband buying a tremendous amount of money in stock, in a certain stock, and then Pelosi and Congress taking action that boosted that stock. We saw this happen with a Republican, uh, either congressperson or senator, I don't remember um, what his name was. Was it Price? Something Price? He, um, he was directly involved in some medical company, and he, like, bought the stock and then took an action that made the stock skyrocket. I mean, I would even go further. Forget this art conversation here. I would go further. I would say you, you shouldn't be allowed to actively invest if you're in Congress or if you're in the Senate, if you're a U.S. politician. Because, I mean, obviously they're, they're doing things that are either clearly illegal or legal but shouldn't be legal. You know what I mean? Um, and it really is a different set of rules. If you're wealthy, if you're powerful, it's a completely different set of rules, and they get away with everything. And as long as they have, like, that just touch of plausible deniability, then everybody plays stupid on purpose, and everybody in the media acts like, well, to be fair, they did a decent job in this segment, but a lot of people in the media act like, I don't, I don't see what the issue is. You should know what the issue is. Everybody should know what the issue is. Uh, I don't think this is okay. And um, I see through it, man. That's all I can say is I see through it. Okay. Let me take a quick break. When we come back, Raytheon goes woke. We'll talk about that and much, much more. Stay right there, y'all.
We are back, bitch. All right, welcome back, everybody. Let's keep on going. Let's keep on going. Okay. I want to give you guys breaking news. So I have a little bit of breaking news for everybody. Um, There are currently protests going on in Cuba. There's protests and there's counter-protests going on in Cuba. Uh, And Joe Biden has just released a statement on the protests. So he says, we stand with the Cuban people and their clarion, clarion, clarion. I've never actually said that word out loud, I don't think. Clarion call, clarion call for freedom and relief from the tragic grip of the pandemic and from the decades of repression and economic suffering to which they have been subjected by Cuba's authoritarian regime. The Cuban people are bravely asserting fundamental and universal rights. Those rights, including the right of peaceful protest and the right to freely determine their own future, must be respected. The United States calls on the Cuban regime to hear their people and serve their needs at this vital moment rather than enriching themselves. Okay, so... There's a lot of stuff to say about this. Let's rewind a little bit to the uh, Obama era, because one of the things that Obama did that I put on his list of his best accomplishments is normalizing relations with the Cuban government. Um, You know, I think the Iran deal was the correct thing to do. In a sense, it was politically brave because obviously the establishment did not want to normalize relations. With Iran and the neocons who'd been running the government for so long did not want to do that. So I think it was the right thing to do when it comes to Iran, make that uh, nuclear agreement. And I think that with Cuba, the, you know, removing of sanctions and lifting the embargo and normalizing relations, I think that was absolutely the right thing to do. Now, unfortunately, Trump came into power. And even though he pretended half the time to be like in favor of peace or whatever, he uh, put the embargo back in place. So, you know, he brought us right back to square one. And uh, that is a horrendous thing that Trump did. I criticized it at the time. I'm criticizing it right now. So Joe Biden gets into power. And listen, a lot of people think they they look at Biden and they say, well, you were part of the Obama-Biden administration. So you're probably going to, you know, return to the Obama era on this front and go back to what he did. Turns out that was incorrect. So get this, the Trump administration put 240 sanctions, 240 sanctions on Cuba, 240. With the swipe of a pen, Biden can remove all of it. It doesn't have to go through the House. It doesn't have to go through the Senate. With the swipe of a pen, Biden can remove all of those sanctions. He didn't remove them. And so now we're in a position where the country is being just economically starved, being blockaded. And yes, of course, people are struggling as a result of that. Now, that's not, I'm not absolving uh, you know, the Cuban government of any wrongs that they've done internally. And, and I'm not saying like all of their domestic policies are correct or whatever. I'm not saying that they don't have authoritarian aspects of that government. I'm sure they do. But the United States, we are responsible for what we do. We are responsible for what we do. And what we've done is embargoed Cuba. And so if you actually cared about the Cuban people, what would you do? You would 
lift the embargo. You'd get rid of those 240 sanctions. Because the thing that they're protesting for, by the way, all of the initial reports, the, the initial articles were very clear. The thing that they're saying is we need more food and we need more medicine and medical supplies. It's, you know, shortages for like syringes for COVID vaccines or whatever. The United States cannot pretend like, oh, we feel so bad for the Cuban people. We support the Cuban people. We're on their side unless and until you lift the embargo. Now, listen, if you lift the embargo and, you know, all of these immediate problems get resolved because they have access to things that they should have access to. They, they have more food. They have more medical supplies and things of that nature. If under that scenario, when we've normalized relations with them, uh, and then you have street protests that are over authoritarian aspects of the Cuban government, then, I mean, listen, I totally get it. You know, like... I don't live there. It's not my country. I can't dictate what they do, and I shouldn't be able to dictate what they do. That's my standard for every country. I'm going to stay out of the internal affairs of other countries. But, like, if we do the right thing that we are responsible for, and then they take action and they're protesting and whatnot, hey, man, your country, do whatever you want. I, like, I get it. They're protesting now. I'm not saying the government should come out and crack down on all of it. Of course not. All I'm saying is it's incredibly cynical for the United States to pretend like we care so deeply about the Cuban people. We're on your side when you could immediately resolve the crisis happening now. If you just lift the embargo, that's it. That's it. So of course, listen, there's the, again, the initial, you know, the initial reasons that were given for the protest. We need more food. We need more uh, medical supplies. And, I look at that, I go, those are perfectly reasonable things to be protesting for, without a doubt. Then, funny enough, the articles changed and evolved and morphed into, oh, this is actually, they're, they're protesting for freedom and democracy. Wait, we thought it was very specifically over, like, food shortages and medical supply shortages. Now it's being interpreted by Western, the Western media as they want freedom and democracy. So they're taking this moment, and they're trying to, transfer it into actually the entire government should be overthrown. If you don't see why that's cynical on the part of the West and on the part of the U.S. government to make that argument, then I don't know what to tell you. You know, I got a bridge to tell you if you don't realize how cynical that is. Because if we, we're only responsible for what we do, what we're doing in regards to Cuba right now is 240 sanctions. If we lift those sanctions, it'll definitely help alleviate the problem, Okay. But there's the point. Let's say we lift the sanctions, alleviate the immediate problem. Then maybe you don't have the people in the street. And we want the people in the street because we want to destabilize it. We want to overthrow the government because we'd like to have, you know, somebody like Batista back in power. We'd like to have a, a strong man who is beholden to U.S. corporate interests. The real reason we have a beef with Cuba is because they threw us out. They threw out our corporation. They nationalized the oil industry, which the U.S. was controlling. They nationalized it in 1960. And our government has never gotten over that. Our corporations have never gotten over that. So that's what this really comes down to for the U.S. We want a U.S. puppet government in there to, you know, be beholden to our interests. Again, if, if they meant any of this talk here 
about caring about the Cuban people, the first thing you do is lift. That's the very first thing you do. Because that would drastically improve the situation. But they don't want to do it. And the reason they don't want to do it is because if you lift the embargo, maybe those people aren't in the streets. And what we want is the people in the streets because we want to destabilize the government and then overthrow the government. Okay? Now, again, I don't want anybody to misinterpret what I'm saying as, like, a defense of the Cuban government. You know, uh, I don't want anybody to misinterpret what I'm saying as, like, I now absolve the Cuban government of all of their domestic policies and anything that they've done that's authoritarian. You know, because that's not the argument that I'm making. I'm not absolving them of any of their wrongdoings. And we can have a conversation. We could go point for point and issue by issue and policy for policy. And I could tell you where I think the Cuban government is right and wrong and what they're doing internally. But that's not a conversation for us to have right now because the context matters. And the context is Biden and the U.S. and many leaders here are cynically weaponizing what's happening to try to destabilize and overthrow the government because we have our own motives in wanting to overthrow that government. It's, got no, it's nothing to do with humanitarian concerns for the Cuban people. Because again, if you did actually care about the Cuban people, you could help fix the situation right now by lifting the embargo. That would in turn help them get a lot of the supplies and the things that they need. So you could help. You could help. In my opinion, what would be ideal? Of course, the thing that would be ideal is we lift the sanctions. We, since we're responsible for what we do, I would make sure we do the right thing by the Cuban people because I care about their suffering. And then once we do that, once we get to that point, you know, do I think Cuba should have free and fair elections? Do I think they should get rid of any, you know, authoritarian laws they have? Um, do I hope that they're free and they can have both personal freedom and liberty, but also economic security? Yes, that's what I want for them. You know, I, I, of course I want that for them. But again, their inter internal workings, it's not, it's not for me to tell them what to do in their own country. They need to determine what they do in their own country. Okay. And, but all I can tell you is from our perspective, from my perspective, from the U.S.'s perspective, we are responsible for the embargo and for those 240 sanctions. And so we should get rid of them right now, and that will definitely materially improve the lives of so many Cubans. Um, but again, we don't want to do that because the U.S. views that as then we're, we're helping to prop up the authoritarian government, the communist government that we disagree with, the communist government that's not allowing us to sort of exploit the region. That's the way it's viewed in the U.S. So we cynically keep the embargo in place, further hurting them, and then turn around and feign like we care so much for the civilians who are being hurt. And then we twist it into actually the main reason why everybody is out there in the streets is they want freedom and democracy, namely they want to be more aligned with the U.S. again and more aligned with U.S. interests and have a government that's friendly to U.S. interests. So all I'm saying is you have to look at this skeptically because to not look at it skeptically is to be colossally naive, okay? So again, the main conversation here should be we are responsible for what we do. And if we want to do the right thing, we lift the embargo right now, okay? Outside of that, we can have a long conversation about the Cuban government and how they've been wrong and what's off with their domestic policies and what are the authoritarian actions they've taken, so on and so forth. There's a lot to criticize there for sure. And we can do that. 
you know, in the name of intellectual honesty, we should do that. But first and foremost, take care of what we are responsible for. And what we're responsible for is the embargo, and we need to get rid of that before we say or do anything critical of the internal workings of Cuba. So I see a lot of arguing going on in left circles about this, where some people want to take this instance and use it to flex their intellectual independence and talk about how actually the Cuban government is bad and it is wrong and it is authoritarian and we should talk about that honestly. And I see other people who look at this instance and they say, forget about any of the problems internally with the Cuban government. We bear a lot of responsibility for this simply because of the embargo. And I see a lot of people making their points, but people feel like they have to pick a side in that argument. You know what I mean? They feel like, you know, if you're only focusing on the problems with the Cuban government, then you're like doing the CIA's bidding for them. Or you're, it's like wag the dog and you're being duped, you know? And then vice versa, people look at everybody making the point on our embargo, and they think these are like idiot, tanky lefties who are unwilling to criticize any government that nominally calls themselves socialist or communist. And so you work backwards from the conclusion that socialism or communism is good, therefore any government that bears that name is worth defending in everything they do. And so this is only the U.S.'s fault. But honestly, what I see is a lot of people wanting to take a side and mostly people talking over each other's heads and not listening to each other. And that's just, that's such a common problem online, definitely with the online left. It's, I want to talk and I don't want to listen and if everybody has that mindset of I want to talk and I don't want to listen, it's so easy to straw man people who disagree with you even slightly instead of steel manning everybody and like having a charitable interpretation of what everybody around you is saying and trying to actually understand where they're coming from. Instead of doing that, everybody's sort of doing the opposite nowadays. So, you know, I, I think my position on this is clear. I think it's sufficiently nuanced. I think it's correct, obviously. Uh, but if history has taught me anything, that won't uh, be received nicely. So it is what it is, but this is the current statement. And first and foremost, most important thing is lift the embargo. And then if Cuba wants to, you know, fix their own internal politics and have a more free system and, and address any of the shortcomings domestically or it, get rid of any authoritarian, um, you know, laws that are in place or actions of the government, I hope they do fix that. I hope they do fix that. And there's a lot to criticize, but again, we're responsible for what we do, so we absolutely need to lift that embargo. And until we do that, I don't want to hear anything from the U.S. government or U.S. leaders, because we are, at least in part, responsible for what's happening there. And if you pretend like we're not, I think that's just dishonest. All right, next. So last week, an uh, interesting story popped up. It's about woke Raytheon. So there's a guy by the name of Christopher F. Rufo. He uh, is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Now, I'll let you guys know up front. Listen, this guy, I mean, he's a right-wing guy. Um, I really do question not only his motives, but others' motives in jumping on this story. Like, I think they're actively searching out for woke stuff to get mad at. So I don't know how much of this is hyperbolic 
and exaggerated and how much of this is real. But, you know, nonetheless, I want to tell you a little bit about what this guy found and then the reaction. So this guy, Christopher F. Rufo, tweeted the following. Scoop. Raytheon, the nation's second largest defense contractor, has launched a critical race theory program that encourages white employees to confront their privilege, reject the principle of equality, defund the police. Let's review the internal documents. And so he, he posts a bunch of the internal documents. He says, last summer, Raytheon CEO Greg Hayes launched the Stronger Together campaign. Funny, that was the Hillary Clinton uh, mantra or slogan. Instructing employees on becoming an anti-racist today. He signed a corporate diversity statement and then asked all Raytheon employees to sign the pledge and check their own biases. The program is centered on intersectionality, a core component of critical race theory that divides the world into competing identity groups with race, gender, religion, sexual orientation, and other categories, defining an individual's place within the hierarchy of oppression. He continues, Raytheon then asks white employees to deconstruct their identities and identify their privilege. The company argues that white, straight, Christian men are at the top of the oppression hierarchy and must work on recognizing their privilege and step aside for minorities. Raytheon instructs white employees to say they pray things change soon. Whites must acknowledge that their own discomfort is a fraction of their black colleagues who are exhausted, mentally drained, frustrated, stressed, barely sleeping, scared, and overwhelmed. He continues, Raytheon has segregated employees by race and identity groups for black, Hispanic, Asian, Native American, LGBTQ, and other intersectional categories. Um, I'll give you a little bit more here, but it goes on. Next, Raytheon explicitly instructs employees to oppose equality, defined as treating each person the same regardless of their differences, and strives instead for equity, which focuses on the equality of the outcome. Um, finally, in a collection of recommended resources, the company encourages white employees to defund the police, participate in reparations, and decolonize your bookshelf, and join a local white space. Okay, so that's the gist of it. Um, I'm sure, you know, he shows some documents here, so some of it I'm sure is real. I don't know which parts are hyperbolic or being exaggerated. I also don't know to what extent this stuff is actually being enforced. Um, it could vary, I mean, because I'm sure you guys have worked a thousand different jobs. I've worked a thousand different jobs. It's very possible that this is one of those things where, like, they hand out a pamphlet and never say anything to you about any of it. You know what I mean? Like, okay, we're trying to cover our ass, so here's some shit that Robin D'Angelo wrote, and now we're done with it. You know what I mean? So I don't know how much they're trying to make, you know, trying to scare people with this to gin up the narrative because of course the right does this all the time. They take something and they say, let's make this the narrative. And they do successfully oftentimes do that. You know, like at the same time that Biden was sending out checks to people with the stimulus package, uh, Republicans were talking about like Mr. Potato Head now being called Potato Head or some shit or Dr. Seuss. So they changed the conversation to the culture war stuff to, you know, try to downplay or, or push aside some decent economic stuff that their opponents are doing. So I just want to get that out there on the record. Now, having said that, the reaction to this is fascinating. So a little bit before this, in regards to another goofy story involving race, Laura Ingram was like, we should, you know, basically defund the military, defund the military industrial complex or whatever she said. Then the reaction to this was very similar. You had a lot of right-wingers basically saying, defund Raytheon. You know, like no more tax money for Raytheon or whatever. Things to that effect were being argued. 
And um, so what's my reaction to all this? My reaction is very simple. I find it hilarious that, well, actually, I don't know if hilarious is the right word because it's also just massively depressing, but it takes something like this to make the right turn on Raytheon and the military-industrial complex. So when all of these so-called defense contractors were doing war profiteering and were creating the weapons of war that were used to kill hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians, that didn't bother you? That didn't bother you. The fact that we arm and fund Saudi Arabia, who's committing a genocide in Yemen, the fact that we arm and fund Israel, who's doing endless illegal occupation, wantonly violating international law, that never bothered you. The fact that we arm and prop up a lot of vicious governments and dictators, that doesn't bother you. That doesn't bother you. So when they're involved, all of these grotesque crimes around the world, that never bothered you. But the thing that you take issue with is Raytheon is being a little too woke now, so we need to defund them. Listen, what's the old saying? You never look a gift horse in the mouth. I don't even know what that means, but it sounds appropriate to bring up right now because you know what? I'll take it. As long as you end up in the correct spot, which is let's not keep shoveling money into Raytheon or Boeing or Lockheed Martin or whatever, as long as you say, hey, let's, uh, let's reduce the amount of tax money that they're getting because this is unacceptable, fine. You got there in a goofy-ass way. You didn't show your work, or if you did show your work, you used the wrong formula to get to the correct conclusion. But you know what? If you're at the correct conclusion, I'll take it. It's just hilarious that their issue is Raytheon is too woke as opposed to Raytheon helps uh, do war crimes, helps arm authoritarian governments or theocratic governments, helps add to the intense misery and suffering that people experience around the world. So you did not come to the right answer with the correct formula, but you're at the right answer, so you know what? I'm, I'm going to take it. I'm just going to take it. But I do think it shows in many ways how unserious the right is when it comes to, you know, their moral compass is broken. That's the best way I can explain it. Their outrage meter is broken. They're not really looking at things when it comes to morality and ethics and and they're not looking at things in an objective, intelligent way, they're really being led by their feelings and the things that trigger them. And in a way, this is them wanting to act on a real-world problem because they're triggered, wanting to act on a real-world problem because they're emotional about the culture war. So it's ridiculous, it's silly, it's pathetic, but whatever. As long as you end up at the right place, I'll take it. Um, but really, the war crimes should have been the thing that made you want to defund Raytheon and defund the military. And by the way, just to be clear, when I say defund Raytheon or defund the military, I'm talking about let's cut the budget massively and take that money and put it into infrastructure, put it into healthcare, put it into education, because we should. We spend more than the next 10 or 12 biggest nations combined, and most of them are our allies when it comes to the military. So we need to cut that no matter what. Um, but let's be clear, I also don't think this is going to lead to like a lasting coalition people on the right and people on the left being anti-war, a lot of the people who are so-called anti-war on the right, they don't really follow through with that much. Some of the libertarian types do from time to time, but a lot of times it's just they're anti-war in, in sophistry only. 
They're anti-war in rhetoric only. It's not when it comes down to voting. You know, it's the same thing with a lot of the fake populists. When it comes time to actually vote, they're nowhere to be found, like um, Hawley being against the $15 minimum wage. So, but at least some of the, you know, right-wing clowns online are like, well, now I'm against the military and uh, against imperialism. Well, it's sad that it took this, but at least if you're in the right spot, it is what it is, and I'll accept it. I just hope that maybe you take a second look at some more serious reasons why one would maybe want to massively cut military spending. Okay. All right, so here we go. We got a new poll on 2024. So Ron DeSantis is straight Drax and them's glounced. DeSantis, 21%. Pence, 14%. Trump Jr., 7%. This poll is without the big man, though. This is without Trump Sr. Haley, 6%. Cruz, 6%. Romney, 4%. Rubio, 3%. Scott, 2%. Tucker Carlson, 1%. Abbott, 1%. Noam, 1%. Is that Scott again? Oh, Tim Scott and Rick Scott, uh, 1%. Okay. Um, Let me give you a little bit more here. Where was I? Cheney, 1%. So Liz Cheney. Chris Christie, 1%. Pompeo, 0 Hogan, 0 Cotton, 0 Sass, 0 And Hawley, 0%. So this is uh, Echelon Insights that did this poll. Now, at the same time, we just had the... CPAC straw poll come out, and I'll have some other segments coming out on CPAC shortly as well, Uh, but the CPAC straw poll came out, and when you include Trump dusting everybody, just routing everybody, and he would win the primary easily, at least according to the CPAC voters, who are the hardcore base, uh, when you don't include Trump, DeSantis is running away with it. So it looks like there are clear favorites for the 2024 race for Republicans, and listen, as I said, this could get interesting because if Trump was smart, he would immediately sort of ask Ron DeSantis behind the scenes, like, hey, you want to be my VP? I'm going to run again. Because Trump wants to run again. That's what all the reports are. That's where all the evidence points. So he would reach out to DeSantis and say, hey, man, you want to be my VP? I'll offer you the VP slot right now, and, and we'll win. We have a very good chance of winning. Um, if he was smart, he'd do that. Uh, but Trump also is not that smart, and so oftentimes he lashes out at people who he views as a threat, even if it's a minor threat. And so he might use this and actually turn on DeSantis and, you know, try to go after him viciously. In fact, we're already seeing some signs of that. Uh, Christy Noem, who clearly has 2024 ambitions, she started taking shots at DeSantis at CPAC where she argued that, like, my state was brilliant because we decided let's not have any rules around COVID, whereas idiots like in Florida, DeSantis, he did some rules, and boy, is that stupid and authoritarian and tyrannical. So it's already starting, man. It's already starting. But what we see here is if for whatever reason Trump can't win, DeSantis is ahead by a a lot. So we shall see, but, uh, you know, it really, it really is too soon to even have these conversations, though, because the fact of the matter is, you go this early before any race, and you see weird things. 
if I'm not mistaken, I think in 2008 or 2007, on the Republican side, Giuliani was leading by a mile and a half when it came to the Republican primary. And then when he ran, he ended up getting obliterated. So sometimes these people hang on. Biden was up early on in uh, 2019 for the Democrats, and then he ended up winning. Um, sometimes it's just they're a flash in the pan, and they originally show some promise, but then the second they start talking, their numbers start dropping. There's a lot of politicians like that. Kamala Harris, she was one of the top-tier contenders according to the numbers, and she started talking and moved away from sounding even remotely left on economics, and she imploded. So we shall see, but DeSantis, if there is no Trump in 2024, it's possible that DeSantis dusts the field. And um, my guess on his front would be he would be a lot like Trump in that he would pretend from time to time to be populist, pretend from time to time to be like anti-war, but then he would ultimately be a standard movement conservative, just like George W. Bush, just like George W. Bush on steroids, and so he would be terrible. But there you have it. Um, curious to see how these polls move going forward. Okay. Next. So there's a Supreme Court case um, that we learned about a week or two ago, and this wasn't, there wasn't much that was reported on this, and that's a little annoying because I think this is actually very serious. So the Hill says the following, the Supreme Court's recent donor disclosure ruling could embolden future challenges to campaign finance rules, experts say. In Thursday's 6-3 to three decision, split along ideological lines, justices struck down a California statute requiring charities to reveal their donors to state officials. The court's conservative wing said the rule had a chilling effect on First Amendment rights. The ruling doesn't apply to publicly disclosed donors or political groups, but in the majority opinion, Chief Justice John Roberts wrote that disclosure laws must be narrowly tailored to important government interests. Experts say Roberts' opinion effectively toughens the standard of review for all laws that compel disclosure, including election rules. Wow. Okay, so um, right off the bat, I want to swat aside this notion that, you know, the court, it's reasonable for the court to rule this way because free speech, because of the First Amendment. I mean, essentially, they are making the argument that money is speech. In order to make this point, you have to believe on some level that money is speech. And I simply don't buy that. It's just a very convenient loophole and work around to try to protect legalized bribery and corruption. That's what that is. Because think about it. If money is speech, then whoever has more money has the ability to speak more and be heard more by our government, which is supposed to be a representative government. So if you're a corporation, not only do you have rights with this philosophy in mind, it's like you have super rights, you have extra rights. You're going to be heard way more than a random grandma in Tuscaloosa. So it, it's very undemocratic, small d democratic, very undemocratic. Any billionaire, any corporation, they have the loudest voice, so they will be heard the most. And that's exactly what has happened with our government. And there's been a number of cases over the years. It started in the 1970s. Um, and then, you know, recently you had Citizens United 
and you had McCutcheon. But again, you go back and there's um, First National Bank of Boston case. There's a number where it was like a drip-drip effect where the Supreme Court slowly but surely started to rule that restrictions on political spending in many contexts is unconstitutional because of free speech. And then now we're even getting laws that even the disclosure of which political donors are giving money where, even disclosing it is unconstitutional. That's what they're saying. That's the argument they're making. And I find that beyond absurd. If money equals speech, then when you have murder for hire, why shouldn't that be legal? Or at least, because think about it. If you pay somebody to murder somebody for you, you give them money, and the idea is now you need to go murder this person for me. If you get caught doing that, why can't you make the argument, I literally never murdered anybody. I didn't murder anybody at all. I just gave money to somebody and said, maybe you do it. And they can make the argument, my speech, I have free speech. So me paying somebody to go murder somebody is just me saying, using my words to say, I think murder is okay. You're allowed to express that opinion in the United States of America. That's free speech. So should murder for hire be legal? Now, obviously, the person who commits the murder would still go down because they committed the murder. But if you pay somebody to do it, should you be able to get off? Because you did only speak, right? You paid somebody to do it, but if the payment is just speech, then you're just saying you're okay with murder being legal. Right? So, I mean, again, if you apply that logic objectively, you realize it's nonsense. But for some reason, when you apply it to political spending, people are like, oh, that's okay. That's not anywhere near okay. It's obviously not okay. And the Supreme Court even had the nerve to say, this isn't corruption or even the appearance of corruption. It's not the corruption or even the appearance of corruption. So when politicians take money from corporations or billionaires or PACs, and then they end up pushing legislation that does their bidding and not the bidding of what their people want, what the American people want, that's not even the appearance of corruption. That's not even the appearance of corruption. I mean, I, they're just wrong. And this is just a sloppy intellectual veneer to put over legalized bribery and corruption. And so now they're slowly but surely chipping away, even at the transparency of that corruption. See, this was always the bullshit middle ground that Democrats would take. They would be like, well, I guess money in politics is what it is. We can't really change it. But we're in favor of more transparency. So at least you're going to be able to see who's buying your politicians. So a Republican could be ExxonMobil, whatever. See, we can track the money. Uh, this random political group that spends on X, Y, or Z, they took money from this rich person in, you know, whatever, in Los Angeles. Now they're saying, no, even that, you can't do that. So, and just so everybody understands, the way it works is a little different when you look at the different legal entities. So, you know, the rules for spending on an individual candidate uh, are, are different than the rules for spending on a PAC that funds the candidate or spending on a single issue advocacy group or, you know, or spending on a political party. So there are different categorizations under the law that have different levels of rules and regulations that are allowed. But my point is, and this is the point that they're making in this article too, we're slowly creeping towards the more cases we hear on this, the more cases we see on this, eventually we're just going to get to a total Wild West situation where it's like there are no constitutional rules and regulations on spending in politics, whether it's for a candidate, whether it's for a PAC, whether it's for a party, there, no rules at all. And not only no rules, but they also, the people who are doing the corruption have a right to hide their identity 
from you, and so you don't even know who's buying your politicians. That's where we're headed. And so this is a really important case because it's just another step in that direction, and everybody should be afraid from this. Everybody should condemn this because it's the biggest perversion of the First Amendment that I've ever seen. Okay, next. So Amazon workers uh, were carted off in stretchers at uh, the, the warehouse in Staten Island because there was sweltering heat. So Jordan Chariton's status coup says the following, new, we uncovered Amazon workers in New York warehouse have been, fainted, have been fainting, uh, being carted off on stretchers due to the sweltering hot working conditions inside the warehouse. Quote, from the moment we walked in, we're literally dripping wet. So, he goes on to explain, when management was told about this, they were, they were like, okay, we're going to get everybody fans. So they got them fans, and a lot of people were like, listen, this is just blowing the hot air right back at me. Um, it's not really helping that much. There were also issues where, you know, wherever they would get their cooler water, it wasn't working, and so the Amazon was handing out bottles of water that who knows how long they'd been in the heat because the water was cloudy and the water was hot, and so... People hated that as well. Um, Amazon, of course, is, is downplaying this and denying aspects of it because that's what they do. That's what they've done every step of the way when they've been called out on a variety of different things. But this is a problem that is a lot more widespread than I realize because it's not just Amazon. It's other factories as well. Now, we talked about this a little bit on the last episode of Crystal Kylan, friends. By the way, check out that episode. We talked to a, a psychedelics expert who works for MAPS. And maps are at the forefront of all of these studies on MDMA and uh, psilocybin and all these psychedelic drugs. And they're studying how they help or if they help with anxiety, depression, PTSD, so on and so forth. So check it out. You're not going to want to miss it. Uh, and guys, by the way, the algorithm crushes us. When, when I talk about foreign policy or drugs, that's when the algorithm crushes me the most, the most. And talking with Crystal, she's realized the exact same thing now behind the scenes at Breaking Points. Certain topics, if you touch them, the algorithm extra crushes you. I think I get screwed over with all the videos, but definitely when it comes to foreign policy and when it comes to drugs, they just don't want those videos getting out. They just don't want them getting out because I think they want to protect advertiser money and they, want to, they view it as fringe borderline stuff and who knows what these people are saying and we don't want people advocating for breaking the laws or whatever. And so they really derank us in the algorithm. So, but definitely check out that uh, you could subscribe on Substack uh, or for free or pay the $5 to get the video or just go to any of the podcast uh, platforms to listen to that podcast because it was phenomenal. Our guest was so good and knew all the ins and outs and all the details and what was going on with the studies and had personal experiences with psychedelics. So check that out. But anyway, I digress. We talked about this during the podcast as well, Crystal and I, when it was just us. I want to show you this amazing video. Look at this protest that's now happening in the middle of the country at a Frito-Lay factory. This is a strike for our lives. We get no days off, 12 hour days, no time with our families, and we get no good pay. We haven't had a raise in years.
that's been here for over 25 years, and I've been here for 37, and they are still forcing those people and myself 12 hours a day, seven days a week. They were working for home. Half the HR couldn't be seen for most of the weeks, but we had to be there 12 hours a week, seven days a week. It's unfair to these people. They got kids. They got families that live out here. But anymore, when you tell people that you work at this place, they just call you a slave. We toured this in fifth grade even. They said, hey, you can, you'll be happy to work here someday. Of course, that was before all the uh, horrible working conditions and the uh, lack of pay. <laughs> Even though they should, 
God, that would be such a game changer. In the long run, that's an even bigger change than a $15 minimum wage, by the way, the PRO Act. So I would love to see that. The other thing, as I watch this, I think we need a lot stronger rules on the number of hours uh, you work and, you know, amount of time that you sh- should absolutely have off by law, um, more rules on, and laws on overtime pay. The other thing that's huge is climate control. You know, it, just like in Amazon, people being taken out on stretchers, you get that and the opposite when it was freezing. It was way too cold in there. So there there should absolutely be rules on climate control, that it needs to fit within a certain window that's comfortable for human beings. Um, 2021, we're still dealing with a lot of this stuff. And you know what, guys? If these workers fight, it's very possible that Fritos decides this is all becoming too much trouble. Now we're just going to outsource the jobs and have a factory elsewhere. See, again, that's where good public policy is super important. What you should do is penalize them and basically make it so they're incentivized to keep the jobs here because they're better off keeping the jobs here. Where if they, you know, ship the jobs overseas, they may have cheaper labor costs up front, but you make it so that once they get the product into the U.S., they're taxed in a way where it's actually not as profitable to have, you know, the jobs elsewhere. Make it more profitable for them to have it here. So, God, we're so far behind. We need to fix this, whether it's Amazon, whether it's this factory here. We need to not only have the jobs here, create the jobs here, but have reasonable rules around it. And just like we learned, Iceland, for example, had a wildly successful uh, trial run with four-day work week, and now 86% of the country is going to have the option to do uh, four days a week. Why don't we have that here? We absolutely should have that here. Because, by the way, productivity either stayed the same or went up in some cases. So let's do that here. But again, these are things we're sort of lagging behind all a lot of other developed countries on this front, and it's unacceptable. So solidarity with the Amazon workers, solidarity with um, the Frito-Lay workers here. By the way, the CEO, uh, PepsiCo is the parent company of Fritos. Uh, that guy makes about $15 million a year. And these guys, now to be fair, they make about $15 an hour in the Frito-Lay factory, but like I said, they went nine years with only a 20-cent raise, and they have all these terrible working conditions. So... It's not just enough to just have $15 an hour. We also need reasonable rules around labor in this country, and we should have, you know, more unions. And we just got to fix this system, man. It's incredibly exploitative, and I think that's obvious. Okay, next. So uh, some Republican officials, both former politicians and current politicians, they were caught on a hidden camera praising Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema at a private gathering. This is incredibly telling. Take a look and then we'll discuss. We have a bunch of people around, particularly progressives, who all they want to talk about is, well, let the people's will be done. No, 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 no. We don't want the people's will to be done immediately because you have the passions of the majority that, that remember, our, our Constitution was set up to protect who? Minority rights, not the majority rights. But the reality is they are pushing as far as they can. Fortunately for us, the filibuster is still in effect in the Senate. Without that, we would be deadbeat, and this thing would be, then, then we'd be having a, a little bit more frantic discussion than we're having today. 
but thank goodness for Cinema and, and Joe Manchin. I like it when AOC is going after Joe Manchin. Like, it's really great for me. You know, it makes my job easier as a conservative because, you know, I can go to Joe Manchin or, or, or person, uh, Cinema and be like, hey, guys, you know, but I'm really sorry you're having to go through that. <laughs> nobody, should just be, nobody should be treated like this. I, I just really thank you for standing for the country. And, you know, all of you in this room, people at home on Zoom, let me tell you right now, if you want to do one thing to, to keep the republic afloat, call Joe Manchin's office, call Curtis Cinema's office, be polite, smile as you're talking about. You know, if you talk on the phone with, with a smile, your voice sounds better. He's like, hi, I'm here to talk to Senator Joe Manchin and thank him for keeping the filibuster intact. I'm, you know, I'm just a Republican voter from, from State X, then back, so I just want to say thank you. Because what's happening up here is the fact that they've decided not to blow open the filibuster, in a lot of respects, is going to save the Republic from the worst things that the left has to do. And HR1 is the tip of the iceberg. So we just got to hold the line right now, keeping the filibuster a big part of that and all the other elements that I know y'all are discussing this week. It's a lot easier to pass giveaways than this to take them away. Yeah. And everyone thinks, oh, well, you know, we'll just take them away. No, we won't. No, we won't. So please, if any of you have any thoughts about the idea that a filibuster removal it was a good deal, and I know the previous president was for it and still is, it's a bad idea. Call Joe Manchin and say thank you. There it is. So I want to give credit to Undercurrent, the outlet Undercurrent, web show Undercurrent, got that video. So credit to them. Check them out. Uh, and also credit to David Dole, the Rational National. I saw this clip because David Dole covered it, so you could see it said the Rational National on the side there. I just wanted to give credit to everybody who, you know, got this out there in a way where it came across my radar. I'm very happy I saw this. This is really important. By the way, there's another really interesting thing that happened with Joe Manchin. He was at a private gathering, and he basically admitted that he was begging Republicans, hey, you've got to give us something somewhere. And so his idea was, guys, just hop on board with the January 6th commission, and then if we do the January 6th commission, that'll be enough to like pacify the Democrats and pacify the base so they feel like something really important is being done, when ultimately on policy we're not really budging an inch. But at least we'll have the theater set up in a way where the Democratic base is preoccupied with that as opposed to substantive policy issues. So Joe Manchin was basically saying, like, hey, idiots, I'm on your side. This is what you need to do in order to make it so that a lot of the Biden agenda and, and a left agenda, more importantly, doesn't get passed. Give people the theater. And the way to do that is the January 6th commission because, you know, we could talk about that for the next six months as opposed to talking about $15 minimum wage or whatever the hell it is. So in a way, he's more nefarious because he's agreeing with the Republicans, but then he's also smart enough to understand this is how we can distract people in a way that works. So it says a lot about uh, Joe Manchin. Now, it, I mean, what's the takeaway? The takeaway is, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema are either suckers for the Republican agenda and corporations, or, this is more likely, they know exactly what they're doing, and they want to block a real Democratic agenda, and they want to serve corporations. You know, and we talked about this when seven or eight Democrats in the Senate were against the $15 minimum wage. We went and we took a look, and I think all of them are rich, and all of them have taken a tremendous amount of money from 
um, you know, corporations and groups that are against raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. So that's who they are. That's who they are. And don't tell me we can only be as progressive as Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema allow us to be when you don't have a strategy and you don't fight and you don't try to do a character stick approach to get them on board with everything you've got. You know what I mean? Because Joe Manchin is wrong when he says, I'm a West Virginia Democrat. No, you're not. West Virginia Democrats, West Virginia, all West Virginians, or excuse me, most West Virginians, it's like 70% or something, support a $15 minimum wage. They do. They want another stimulus check. They do. They're pro-union. So if Joe Manchin really reflected the values of West Virginians, he could be socially conservative. He could be pro-gun. He could be anti-abortion and things of that nature. But on economics, they have a, a strong labor history there, strong labor history in West Virginia. And he is not pro-labor, Joe Manchin. He, he wants to support the corporate agenda and block a Democratic agenda. So, I mean, they're admitting it. They're all saying it, the quiet part loud. The Republicans are all saying, God, we love Manchin and we love cinema because they're, they're the only thing, they're, they're the only things, they're the only people standing between the country and a truly decent agenda. By the way, I love, they said, uh, you know, they frame it as, oh, they're preventing the worst things from getting through. What are those things, guys? Medicare at 60 or 55. In other words, getting millions more Americans onto a single-payer system. They're preventing that. They're preventing, you know, uh, negotiating for better drug prices, so lowering drug prices. They're preventing, like, family, paid family leave and $15 minimum wage. They're preventing that. They're preventing that. And these guys talk about it like, oh, they're really stopping the worst parts of the agenda. You mean the best parts of the agenda that the American people love and want right now? Listen, if I'm Biden, I take this video and I play it for Mansion and Cinema. Call them in the office, play it for Mansion and Cinema. And I'll say, listen, if you guys support my agenda, if you support the $15 minimum wage, if you support paid family leave, if you're on board with, with a partisan reconciliation bill that will actually do good things, then we're not going to do anything with this tape. If you don't do it, we're going to primary you. The Democratic Party is going to primary you, and I'm going to run these ads in your home state, and the Democratic Party will do everything to fund an opponent that will beat you. That will beat you. So we'll, I'll be your worst enemy. I will publicly embarrass you and shame you and expose you for what you are. But if you do the right thing, I'm your best friend. And you'll get another military base in West Virginia. Uh, Joe Manchin, what do you want? Kirsten Cinema for Arizona. I'm all ears. You want to help people of Arizona? You want to make them love you? You want to deliver on something? Tell me what. And I got you. This is what you got to do. But listen, as it stands right now, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema are the saviors of elitist establishment Republicans, and they're the saviors of corporate America. Their whole job is to perpetuate the status quo. If we get change, make sure the change is only a fraction of what it can be and should be. And this is, by the way, another reason why we'll keep having elections that swing back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Whereas if we had a Democratic Party that actually embraced an FDR-style agenda, Democrats would win election cycle after election cycle after election cycle because you're actually delivering for people if you do that. So shame on them. And this is how thankful the GOP is behind closed doors. 
They know what's going on. They know who's to blame. So we should all know who's to blame as well. All right, next. So CPAC is going on this week, and uh, CPAC is the Conservative Political Action Conference. It's where the hardcore right-wing base, um, you know, gets together and they say silly things to each other and they turn their brains off and clap like seals. <laughs> uh, so the My Pillow guy was doing an interview, and there's a, a reporter from I think Salon here. I didn't know that Salon actually did any original reporting, but apparently they do. Here's a reporter from Salon uh, questioning the My Pillow guy. Mike Lindell, I think his name is Mike Lindell, Lindell, one or the other. Um, this guy is TFG as TFG gets, the MyPillow guy. Every conspiracy theory, he buys hook, line, and sinker. He probably has said like there are four or five times that Trump was already supposed to be reinstated as president. But that doesn't deter him from now thinking, no, 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 this like 27th time that I think he's going to be reinstated, this time is definitely going to happen. So he's being pressed a little bit by a reporter. You can't hear much of what the reporter says here, but you can see what the MyPillow guy responds with. And then at the end, they get into a full-on argument, and it's hilarious. These are lawyers. The Supreme Court is there to protect our country. Have you watched Absolute uh, 90? He watched it. Zachary watched it. That's, that's pretty good for a journalist. You know, that in our country, I, I, compliment, I compliment him. Let me tell you something. I'm going to tell you and I'll tell everybody. In our country's history, every single elected official, if there's fraud involved, they, if there's, no, there's not a statute of limitation. They take the guy, the one, they put him back in office. And it's just never happened at the presidential level. We're doing a quo warranto after the whole world sees on the 10th, 11th, and 12th that we have the packet captures for the whole election. And they're going to go, whoa. And then the Supreme Court will vote 9-0 to pull this down. And you can sit and go, come on, Mike. You know what? I'm just telling you that what's going to happen. And if it doesn't happen, if they don't watch it, that's where the whole public's going to go. You have to protect our country. You have to protect our country. If they don't do it, then you've got states like Arizona. Uh, right now the audits are done, or they're getting done. Uh, Georgia. Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, all them audits will be done. When they find, like, I don't need them. I don't need them. We don't, I don't need those. I'm just telling you, when those come down, too, that's just, if you, let me explain this. He's got a good point. With the packet, with the packet captures everybody, you do, yep, 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 no, I plan, I know, I think in two minutes, right. And, and guys, I'm going to tell everybody really, I'm going to, I'm going to tell everybody really quick. I'm going to tell everybody really quick. The packet captures we have, we do not need those audits, but those if you have the packet captures, which we do, but if you didn't have them, all them audits are going to prove the exact same thing. So you have two things here. You have two pathways to pull this election down, and it's getting pulled down. So, But i got to go, everybody. i got my good friend Ben Carson coming here. Sorry, Zachary. Sorry, Zachary. Um, no, I'm getting because Ben Carson's coming in here. All right, folks, we're going to go to a... And I'll come back. You're going to be here this afternoon. Are you going to be here this afternoon? Come on in. Why don't you stay right here? Come on in here, my good friend, Mr. Ben Carson. God bless you, sir. Okay. All right. All right. 
How you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Yeah, good to see you. Oh, absolutely. Good. I think we're live right now, but they're still shooting some minutes over here. They can't figure out which they want to cover. Are you interviewing you or him just fighting with the press? <laughs> yes, go right ahead. He just asked Zachary if he likes destroying our country. Zachary with Salon, who's been at our booth for days. You know. Oh, man. Oh, man. He asked that guy if he likes destroying the country because he's asking, like, very basic questions about uh, the MyPillow guy's wild theory about how Trump is going to get back in office very shortly. You know, I will say this about the MyPillow guy. He definitely believes everything he's saying. I could tell he believes everything he's saying. He means it, but I'm just amazed that he, he does believe it, and he does mean it, because for the love of God, dude, how do you not understand that it's over, it's done, it's gone? I mean, if he was out there pushing Trump 2024 over and over and over, that's one thing, because he loves Trump, and so I'd see that, and I'd be like, of course he's doing that, he loves Trump. But at this late date, to still be like, I swear he's going to get back in there. Just give me five and a half minutes. I got some guys. We got some guys from the CIA we're talking to. They got some guys at the Pentagon, you know, been on the phone with, uh, with John Voigt. John Voigt's going to be involved. He might end up being in the administration. We love John Voigt, don't we, folks? I think we love him. Like, what, what, what are you doing? What are you doing, man? It's over, son. He said, quote, the, this election is getting pulled down. Dog, that's not a thing. Like, that's not, you can't just say some shit when it's not a thing. The election is getting pulled down. The election is getting pulled down. Biden's like deep into his time in office now. How do you not understand this? And Trump feeds into all this, by the way, because he does these press releases where he'll say like 2024 with a question mark, and then he'll say, or sooner. That's like a wink and a nod to the Q people, like, Please keep loving me and pay attention to me. The only reason I don't kill myself is because you guys talk about me a lot, and I love it when people talk about me. It's the only way I can come. Mm. Oh, man. They lost dozens and dozens of court cases. There were, what, over 60 court cases on the election? And I think the Trump people lost every... Every one but one, and the one that they won was just over some procedural nonsense. And people like this guy are still like, nope, totally fake, totally fraudulent, not buying any of it. I mean, even, so hold on, even if you thought the election was definitely stolen, the evidence of that is horrendous. But even if you thought that, to, to take that next giant mental step, that leap of like, and therefore I know Trump is going to be back in office, by August or in August. I don't think he understands how silly that makes him look, man. I really don't think he understands that. But I think the real thing to fear here is not even this guy. It's how many people are out there that actually think exactly like him or very close to how he thinks. Because that's a scary thought. Because if you think it's like 25% of the population or 30% of the population, that's a lot of fucking people, bro. That's a lot of people. And what do you do with TFGs like that? What do you do? What do you do? I, I think that my uh, you know, ability 
to persuade people who don't agree with me and over time sort of chip away and then eventually get them to agree with us on a lot of stuff. I, I, I'm second to none on that front, I think. Now, maybe I'm wrong. It's possible I'm wrong. But I really think that that's the, one of the things I'm most proud of is that. But even I look at these guys and I'm like, www.aintnohopesun.org. That's what I see when I look at these guys. And I take no joy in that. That doesn't make me happy. It makes me sad, actually. But listen, at some point, you're going to have to let it go. At some point, you've got to say, you know what? I'm just, I'm just talking to myself. It's like talking to a brick wall in this situation. And in this situation, it is like that. But what percentage of the population? If we're lucky, if we're lucky, it's only like 10 or 15%. But even 10 or 15% is a freakishly high, raw number of human beings in the United States of America. That's upsetting. And the sources that they trust are sources that are provably, verifiably incorrect about almost everything. And here we are. By the way, this guy created a free speech social media platform that is anti-free speech. Which I was kidding, but I'm not. We covered that on this show. I think he had rules like no cursing, no anti-religious stuff, uh, no porn, etc., etc. He created a free speech platform that is anti-free speech, which proves what? That when these guys talk about free speech, they don't mean it. They're not actually principled in support of free speech. They just want to be the censors. They want to be the ones who control who can say stuff and who can't and what people are allowed to say. He just wants to be the censor. He, he just doesn't want others being the censor. So ridiculous. The election is getting pulled down. Yeah, that, that journalist barely pushing back and asking, like, standard questions, he's destroying the country. Imagine believing that. The one thing I don't doubt is this guy's sincerity, but that's really not a compliment. In fact, it's terrifying. Okay, next. Lauren Boebert is, uh, you know, one of the new far-right congresspeople, uh, very similar to, like, Marjorie Taylor Greene, very Trump-like or Sarah Palin-like. It's just really, really, really not bright, but also, for whatever reason, massively aggressive as well. So uh, it's just not a good mix. And, uh, but it's okay, because the CPAC, she gave a speech, and she gave us this moment. We're here to tell government, we don't want your benefits, we don't want your welfare, don't come knocking on my door with your bouncy outie, you leave us the hell alone. So, um... There's a lot to say about that, but let me just go ahead and show you a tweet that she did not too long ago to prove the kind of person we're dealing with here. Lauren Boebert said, this is in September 16, 2020, I'm living the American dream. I came up from welfare, standing in line, waiting for government cheese, to now running for Congress. Let's keep radical socialists out of government so that people can be empowered to lift themselves out of poverty rather than wait on government. Well, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. You're admitting in your own tweet, you came up from welfare, so you were on welfare, you waited for government cheese, and now you're out of poverty, and you made it to Congress, and you were able to empower yourself to get to that position. You were able to empower yourself, but you did it with a little bit of help from the government, with the welfare and the food. So you're making the opposite point to the one you think you're making. And 
that's the reality that she doesn't view her getting help as like this is a handout or this is an entitlement or this is welfare, even though it's literally welfare. She doesn't view it like that because she thinks I'm a good person and I'm hardworking and my intentions are pure. Okay, so why don't you grant that same mindset to everybody else in the country? If somebody else falls on hard times, no, it's their fault. Your poverty is your own fault. It's because of your own moral character failing. It's not because of a system that has left people behind, even though we know it's largely because of a system that has left people behind. When we have a massive recession and the, uh, the employment rate, unemployment rate spikes overnight, is that just because all those people woke up the next day and decided, I'm going to be lazy from now on? Or is that because of factors in the economy that are bigger than them and they can't individually override that reality? Which is it? You tell me. We all know what the answer is to it. But listen, she said in that speech, we don't want your welfare. We don't want any of that stuff. We don't want government benefits or whatever. Well, you took the welfare. You took the government benefits. And it helped you better yourself, arguably, because obviously you've got other massive failings. But why can't other people have that as well? So you want to take the benefits but just deny them to everybody else. That says everything. By the way, she also got a PPP loan for over $200,000 for her business. It's either her or her family or something like that. What happens? You don't like socialism. You don't like big government until you do because it's helping you. You just don't want it to help other people. You just don't want it to help people of color or poor people uh, from uh, Appalachia. That's what it is. I can't stand this kind of thinking, man. I really can't. It drives me absolutely crazy. Everybody else, you know, you go after their intentions and you go after their character. And if they didn't make it economically, it's just because you suck and you failed. But for her, I took the government benefits and the help and I made it. But the reason I made it is not because the benefits are the help. It's because I'm just a good person. These people really do judge everybody by the size of their wallet. Like this is the same kind of thinking where people look at billionaires and think they must just be mega geniuses and that's why they're there. Like the rich in society are all just better people or whatever. They're not. They're not. A lot of it has to do with inheritance. A lot of it has to do with luck. You know, hard work. The hardest working person I've ever met was basically living at the poverty line and worked three jobs. Does that person deserve to live just at the poverty line? I would argue no. If that person got help with government benefits, am I going to be against them for that or besmirch them for that? No. They deserve all the help they can get because they're a great person doing great things and the system just sort of left them behind. And by the way, you could definitely interpret what she's saying, not just as anti-welfare, also as anti-like social security, anti-Medicare, you know, like benefits and entitlements. The reason why we call them entitlements is because you're entitled to them because everybody paid into it over years. And then when you get old enough, you get back for what you put in, right? So it's just this ridiculous anti-government mindset. She never applies to herself or the people she knows. Because we're good people. Don't question our intentions. When we take welfare, it's okay. When we take Social Security or Medicare, it's okay. If others do it, you're a lazy, freeloading moocher, and we need to stop it. There's no consistency. It's rank hypocrisy. There's no principles at play here or ideological commitments. She's just a prick. She's just a prick and a very unintelligent one at that. All right. Next. So 
So uh, we talked a little bit recently about an interview in the New York Times that Bernie did with Maureen Dowd. Most of the interview, he was trying to hammer away on policy in regards to the partisan reconciliation bill that they want to get through, the human infrastructure bill. Um, Well, there's another part I found interesting in that interview that I wanted to share with you. Sanders passionately believes that the only way to undo the damage done by Trump and Trumpism is by showing that government can deliver, that good policy can overcome dangerous conspiracy theories and lies. Quote, I would have loved to run against him, to tell you the truth, he says of Trump. He's a fraud. He's a phony. That's what he is. And he has to be exposed for that. Even with Trump out of office, Sanders feels we are still on the precipice. Democrats need to speak to the struggles of the white working class, he says, something that sometimes part of the Democratic elite does not fully appreciate, he adds. We've got to take it to them. I intend, as soon as I have three minutes, to start going into Trump world and start talking to people. It's absolutely imperative if democracy is to survive that we do everything we can to say, yes, we hear your pain and we are going to respond to your needs. That's really what this is about. If we don't do that, I fear very much that conspiracy theories and big lies and the drift towards authoritarianism is going to continue. You've got all these folks out there who are saying, does anybody pay attention to me? So that is almost exactly right. The only thing I would change is a word, not from Bernie. I think this was put in by Maureen Dowd. Um, she says, Democrats need to speak to the struggles of the, quote, white working class. I don't know why people do this. I don't know why you would do this. When I talk about we need to fight for the working class, I certainly mean the multiracial working class. And Bernie means the same thing. So liberal elites love to do this, like Maureen Dowd. Apparently she loves to throw in there, oh, he means the white working class. Why would you add white to that? Do you only think white people are middle class? Is that what you think? I don't agree with that at all. When you're fighting for working people, you're fighting for working people of all backgrounds and all ethnicities and races. But they add that, and then they turn an otherwise like relatively benign comment into something that now people are going to take issue with because now you racialize it. Bernie didn't racialize it. Maureen Dowd racialized it. And this is the way a lot of people think, that if you're talking about class politics and the working class, you obviously only mean white people. Never once in my life have I talked about the working class and only meant white people. Ever. Ever. That would be a a straight-up bigoted way to think about these questions. That's not how I think. I know that's not how Bernie thinks, but that is how Maureen Dowd thinks, and that's the problem with Maureen Dowd. But anyway, I digress from that point. That issue aside, everything else he says here I think is spot on. Now, this gets back to the whole, you know, hey, did Trump win because of racism or economic anxiety? Economic anxiety. The problem with that conversation is it's a, it's a false dichotomy. You're making it an either-or when it is simply not an either-or by any stretch of the imagination. So are there voters who supported Trump simply for racial resentment reasons? Absolutely. There are people who voted for him because he said they're Mexicans, they're criminals, they're racists. I assume some are good people. There are people who voted for him because he said we need a total and complete shutdown of Muslims coming to the U.S. until we can figure out what the hell is going on. There are people like David Duke or Richard Spencer who prioritize that sort of bigotry and xenophobia. And so, of course, there's plenty of people who are like that. By the same token, are there some two-times Obama voters who flipped to vote Trump and they live in a dilapidated factory town and they said the only reason I voted for him is because at least he said I'm going to keep your job here, I'm going to bring the jobs back and you know, Clintons were responsible for outsourcing my job and Obama didn't do anything to stop it do those exist too? Of course they exist as well so people are complicated people are complex, you have to talk to individuals and figure out why did you support this person why did you support that person, why are you pro-Trump why are you anti-Trump and if you do that it will paint a very complex picture 
Some of, it, some of the people, it's racism. Some of the people, it's economic issues and outsourcing. Um, some of it, it's both. Some of it has nothing to do with any of that. It's some other random thing that opinion Trump had where they supported him for that reason. So this gets back to that conversation. Now, the main point that Bernie would make, and he's correct about this, is he, wouldn't, he hasn't explained it in such detail, but I think he would concede all this stuff, that really the election comes down, whether it was Hillary or whether it was um, Biden, the election really came down to the Rust Belt and all you needed to be able to do in the case of Hillary, if she chipped away at like 100,000 more voters or 200,000 more voters in the Rust Belt to vote for her, she would have won. And so you made the economic argument. If you were clear to people, no, 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 I'm fighting for you. Even if I don't agree with you on a million things, I'm fighting for you. I'm fighting for all working Americans. If you make that argument and you did it effectively and people believed it, could you have gotten that extra 100,000 or 200,000 people? Absolutely. Absolutely. Instead, she went the route of saying, you know, they're deplorables, irredeemable deplorables or whatever. Now, to be fair, she said only half of his supporters were that, but she said the word irredeemable deplorables, and it was easy to tar her as saying, like, all Trump supporters were irredeemable deplorables, even though she didn't say that. But that, that's the sort of feeling that a lot of people had that these liberal elites are just looking down their nose at me. Bernie's making the point, the only way we're going to save people from going more authoritarian, going further right-wing, becoming more bigger conspiracy theorists and bigger bigots, actually fight for them and make it clear that we're fighting for them and that we're trying to improve their lives. And are there TFGs? Absolutely. Bernie knows that. I know that. Everybody knows that. You're never going to convince everybody. It's not going to happen. But would you have convinced enough to swing an election? 100,000 or 200,000 more voters. Could you have? Absolutely, you could have. Absolutely. And you know what? Even if we go with the upper end of the estimates, let's say in the entire country, 30 or 40 percent are TFG. 30 or 40 percent ain't going to win you an election. And Bernie's point is, if you focus on improving everybody's life and having a real agenda and proving that government can work, that'll be the thing that delivers consistent victories for the Democrats. And so now he's trying to force the Democrats to do that, force Biden to have a good agenda, a proper agenda. Now, I personally have issues with the way he's going about that. I don't think he plays hardball enough. I don't think he draws hard lines enough. I think he capitulates often. I think he has no idea how to play that inside game politics, but he keeps trying to play the inside game politics. I think he should use the bully pulpit more in ways that he doesn't. But suffice to say, he is trying to do exactly this. He's trying to refocus the conversation back on the policies. He's trying to make this be the agenda. And if it is the agenda, then he's saying that's how we win. He's right about that. See, if Bernie was president, he actually would have tried to usher in a new FDR era whereas Biden is not. I mean, you get little bits and pieces of, of deviating from the, the Reagan norm, but still, we're largely in that neoliberal era, and that's ugly. But I love that Bernie said, listen, I wish I was running against Trump because I think I would have crushed him. He's a fraud, and I would have exposed him as a fraud, and I would have made clear I'm fighting for everybody up here. It would have been amazing to see how he ran his campaign against Trump, because the problem that Bernie did against Biden, the issue was he didn't go gloves off. He should have went gloves off on Biden, but he didn't go gloves off. Bernie famously got mad at his uh, staffer, Zephyr Teachout, when Zephyr Teachout called Biden corrupt. That's accurate. Well, Bernie didn't like that, so he said reel it in. And his lines of attack, I think, were not that, um, not as strong as they could have been. And, by the way, he didn't stress anything about electability. He should have made the argument, I'm more electable 
Biden's not more electable. I'm more electable. I'd win by a bigger margin. Obviously, we didn't know Biden was going to win at that time, but he could have said, I'm the one who's the safe option because you guys went with Hillary in 2016. And what happened? Well, Biden's Hillary 2.0, same ideology. I'm the real one who's the safe one. So he should have made that argument as well. But um, I love the fact that he's confidently saying, yeah, I, I could have beaten him for sure. If Bernie had gone gloves off on Trump, he would have beaten him, definitely. And in fact, I think he would have chipped away. I don't think Bernie would have won Arizona, for example, but I do think Bernie would have won Ohio and some states that Trump actually picked off. So, um, uh, what could have been? What could have been? He's still trying, but as the great philosopher Jojo once said, a little too late, or too little too late. All right, final story of the day, y'all. So Caitlyn Jenner is at CPAC. Now, there's something that's very unfortunate that happened. Uh, I think it was when she was leaving. She was sort of harassed by some of the people at CPAC. CPAC is the hardcore right-wing base voters, and so a lot of them are really fundamentalist Christian and have deeply bigoted views. And so they went after her, and they were saying she needs to, like, find Jesus. They were screaming at her. They were dead-naming her over and over, calling her Bruce, 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 and saying, like, repent. And, um, you know, everything you can imagine that's sort of gross and personal and vicious, they were throwing at her. So I saw some of those videos. It, uh, it was unfortunate. Surprisingly, Tommy Lahren is out there uh, defending Caitlyn Jenner, and it, she, she said this, made this hilarious tweet where she was like, there's no space for hatred in, like, the MAGA movement or the America First movement. And it's like, listen, I wish you were right. Like, I, I hope that's the case. I hope they get to the point where they are fully inclusive. But who are we kidding? That's obviously not correct. That's obviously not correct. What do you guys think of immigrants, for example? Go ahead. You tell me. So, I, listen, we don't need to flesh this out now. But interesting, Tommy Lawrence defending um, Caitlyn Jenner. Caitlyn Jenner shouldn't have had to... Uh, go through that. But of course, I mean, I'm not, I'm not blaming her, but I do want to ask her, like, what did you think was going to happen? You're running as a Republican for governor of California. Like, what did you think was going to happen? A lot of the hardcore base people just hate you because you're trans. You don't understand that? You don't get that? Whereas I, for example, hate you because you murdered somebody with a car and got away with it. <laughs> but that's a separate conversation for another day. Anyway, and for other reasons, too, political reasons, whatever. So um, before that abuse was hurled at her, uh, Caitlin was doing an interview with, what's it called, Right Side Broadcasting or something like that. And they live stream like all of Trump's rallies. And they were live streaming a lot of stuff at CPAC, excuse me. And what Caitlin does here is plays the trans card to try to bash the left. Watch. Because you, we're all along media row here. Yeah, and I'm part of it. I'm a part of it, and but we're very. Uh, so am I actually? And we talk. You are. I'm on the yeah. How has the media treated you? Because uh, it, it, when you announced your run, actually, there's a lot of deep state in the media. And we know that, and that's on both sides of it. Oh, I agree. How they treat you? Well, it's always interesting to come from the outside, and then all of a sudden now you're on the inside. It's a different sure. ballgame. Mm-hmm. Uh, the media overall has been very good to me. Um, I have no problem with the media. 
uh, I don't think the that the left has any idea how to like come after me, and they will being in the LGBTQ. You know, so they celebrated what you did. Uh, on of the course, of side. course. So now, what are they going to do? What are they going to do? Well, what are this they going to do? What they've done, and then it hasn't been bad. It, honestly, most of the press has been extraordinarily positive. We have not had a woman uh, governor of California ever. Okay, let alone a trans girl. Wow, I did not realize. Okay, so it's a big jump for California. Such a progressive but state. But to be honest with right? you, we need to change. That's hilarious. So, first of all, let's state the obvious. The people who always say they hate identity politics are playing identity politics here. Bob, there's never been a woman governor of California. Wait, why is that relevant? I thought you guys were against identity politics. Well, and there's definitely never been a trans girl who's been a governor. Okay, but... How is that relevant to who would govern the best? I thought you guys were against identity politics. I thought you didn't look at, like, hollow things like that in order to make a decision when it comes to policy. You're going to look at arbitrary characteristics to determine something about policy? Why not say, wow, we never had a governor with blue eyes in this place. Why don't we have a governor with blue eyes? Because that's not what people vote on. They're not going to vote on your hair color or your eye color or what race you happen to be. That would be a very bad path to go down if I don't say so myself. That would be a terrible idea, but they bring it up because it's convenient to make the argument now that they're trying to do it for Republicans. Oh, yeah, we never had a woman governor, never had a trans girl governor. What do you want me to tell you? I mean, we should probably change that. That's such a shitty argument. It's so, such a shitty argument, and it's so hypocritical. But the even worse part is they're just pretending. They're like, you know, the left doesn't even know how to respond to me running. They have no arguments against me. What are you talking about? I've made a million substantive arguments against you, and other lefties have made a million substantive arguments against you. None of my arguments against you were like, you're trans, therefore I couldn't vote for you. I don't believe that at all. If, if a trans candidate was the best candidate, in an instant I would vote for the trans candidate. That's obvious. The things I go after Caitlyn Jenner for are... All she does is talk about tax cuts, tax cuts, tax cuts, tax cuts, and all she does is talk about deregulation. So, listen, I have nuanced views on all that. For working class people, sure, I like tax cuts. But for the wealthy, I don't want tax cuts at all. In fact, I want tax increases when it comes to deregulation. If there's some unnecessary red tape around a small business that's not bothering anybody and it really prohibits them from doing their job properly, would I get rid of that? Sure. But let's be serious. When we talk about regulation... Most of the time they mean, hey, let's get rid of, like, clean water protections or clean air protection or, you know, uh, this regulation on this business that prevents them from polluting a river or some shit. At, at the national level when we talk about regulation, it's like we're talking about Wall Street. Don't deregulate Wall Street. Don't let them do whatever they want. They're not the smartest guys in the room. They're the greediest guys in the room. This is what we mean when we talk about regulation. So I'm against Caitlyn Jenner because she has the wrong economic worldview. And, you know, if I'm sure if I go point for point through her entire agenda, if she even has one, I would disagree with most of it. You know, and by the way, that was my other big bone to pick with her was you announced a run for governor and you didn't say anything about policy. You didn't even have a policy portion on your website when you were asking people for a donation. What the fuck are you doing? Talk about putting the cart before the horse. That's you getting out there and saying, me, the gloriousness of me, support me because I'm me. That's what that is. I want nothing to do with that. I think that's dumb whether a Republican does it or a Democrat does it. 
or anybody else for that matter. So, I mean, it's just playing identity politics when they say they hate identity politics and saying the left doesn't know how to disagree with me because I'm a trans girl. (laughs) The left does know how to disagree with you. We've been doing it. You're just not listening. All right, guys, out of time, out of show. Love y'all, and I'll talk to you soon. Everybody have a great rest of your day. Peace. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.